to the 65th episode of Rankin Review, and it is a different episode. Typically, yes, I like to talk about genre cinema, as I've called it. I like to talk about science fiction, I like to talk about horror. But I have a background in theater. I studied English and drama at university. I've done a lot of work on the stage, stuff like dinner theater mainly, sort of broad comedy. And uh, as I will be discussing in future episodes, I've done some work in film. So, today, me and my dear friend Sky Brandon are going to talk about the bloody works of William Shakespeare. And I would make the argument that the themes of vengeance and supernatural and general bloodletting could and maybe should appeal to your typical genre crowd. But I'm also aware of the fact that people who tune in to hear about Nightmare on Elm Street 3 or Hostel Part 2 may be taken aback by a little bit of an English or drama lesson about Shakespeare. Sky and I rolled up our sleeves and we talked Shakespeare. And I for one loved it. I hope that you guys do too. This is a very interesting, unique episode of Rankin Review. And as I said, it is the bloody works of William Shakespeare. Other than the subject matter, all of our typical rules do apply, though, kiddos. Spoilers and coarse language are to be expected for the films discussed, and I hope everyone's okay with that. Please seek out Rank and Review on iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That helps me to find listeners. Seek it out on Facebook, like the page, leave a comment. It just It's nice to know that there's people out there appreciating the show. Please visit the website as well if you have the time. It's rankinreview.ca, because I'm up here in Canada. And uh, there you can find an alphabetical list of the reviews, um, and my little mission statement, and all of the back episodes of Rankin Review so far should be currently waiting there for you. So, thank you guys for listening to Rankin Review. As always, spread the word, and here we go with 65 and William Shakespeare. So I'm sitting here with my dear friend, Sky Brandon, and uh, I'm so thrilled that you're doing the show. Uh, 
we're gonna do we're gonna call this episode sixty five. Sure. I, I want this out as soon as possible, Dan. Okay. I'm excited about this. It took us long enough to finally <laughs> make it happen. Sky and I went to school together. We've known each other for so long that I almost don't want to say it out loud at this point. It's <laughs> gotta be close. It'll be close to twenty years. No, it will be. It'll be yeah. It'll be twenty years in the fall probably. Wow. Yeah. Because it was ninety six. When I, well, I guess maybe it would have been 97 before I actually met you, but 96 is when I started taking classes at the drama department. Well, (laughs) that's a long time ago. That that is frightening. Well, like I was saying, I I dusted off my complete works of Shakespeare for this, and it it was dusty, and I don't think, it was probably the drama department days the last time I seriously had had taken a look at it like that. But it's good, you know, (laughs) Arden Edition, it's a good one to have. it may have been the 1900s, the last time I cracked that book. Um, and you are so very, very uh, skilled and versed in Shakespeare. You're the right person to tackle the bloody works of William Shakespeare, which is what I'm calling this episode. And they are bloody. <laughs> uh, typically, we do genre movies. We yeah. do science fiction and we do horror. Horror is leaned on heavily. Um, but I was an English major. I do love the theater. And... There's no one I know more qualified. I could go through all of your qualifications, Sky, but I I like to limit the show to two hours. Oh, go on. <laughs> but uh, not only you, you studied at Stratford and uh, you've worked with Shakespeare on the Saskatchewan, you've worked, you, 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 you know this backwards and forwards. It's a passion, yes. And uh, you're also a, a, a really a dream role model in a lot of ways for artists in Saskatchewan. I'm sorry to suck your dick like this, but... <laughs> You're, you're making a living in the arts, doing what you love. Yeah. And that is just amazing. And you're also really nice on top of it, which is, like, irritating. <laughs> it's like, it's a complete package, so... Well, but because of that, I don't get to see you very much. No, so. it's true. It's true. I think we've you're actually, like, seen each other in person three times when you dropped off the films, yeah. when I gave you back most of the films, <laughs> and now today everything else has been by message or Facebook. But here we are. I got you cornered. We're going to talk Shakespeare. Fantastic. Uh, obviously, you love Shakespeare. Yeah. And I'm sure you've had this question before. Why? <laughs> no, it, no, it is. It's a good question. Like sometimes, you know, you'll do a lot of Q and A's after, you know, student matinees or something like that, and I'll come like, "Why do you like it so much?" And so sometimes I remember I, I really sat down, going, "Okay, what is it? Like, what do I?" And I, and I would try to backtrack. Okay, when did I fall in love with it? And I remember I didn't have like my parents weren't into theater or arts right. at all, but I can remember in high school going, oh, we have to study Shakespeare now. And it wasn't the language. That came later. But it was actually, it was just the stories. The stories are so epic and what the characters go through. I'm like, man, this is huge. I remember like absolutely just loving Macbeth and Hamlet when I studied it in grade uh, 11 and 12. Grade 10, my first one I studied was Merchant of Venice, which is not the norm for grade 10. Not a great entry point, I would argue. But it it did hook me, right? Because there was like, wait, hold on here. Like, they're treating Shylock like this, and he's got, you know, he comes back with a really great argument in terms of having a lot of two eyes. Like, it's, yeah. I studied Romeo and Juliet too much, in a way. I think I did it twice in high school, and then again twice during my university (laughs) studies, because I took it in an English course and in Shakespeare, of course. Yeah. And I I was world-weary of that. But what I do like, especially about the histories and the tragedies, uh, which is, I guess, where my leaning would tend to be, is the epic scale with which it allows the yeah. language and the uh, well, the fact that you're dealing with Julius Caesar and like yeah. these epically huge figures gives you sort of license to go 
as big as you want. Yeah. And uh, that's wonderful for the stage and then for production values, but I do think that it's kind of an untapped thing in film. Yeah. Not that there isn't a lot of Shakespearean <clears throat> film adaptations, it's true. but you can do anything with Shakespeare. That's well, the real thesis. And what's been interesting, I think you're right, and what's been interesting over the past few years too, given that, you know, t- two years ago was the 450th anniversary of his birth, and now we're going into 2016, which is the 400th anniversary of his death there's all these things that are coming up and and because tv i think is caught up in terms of you can do some really cool stuff on tv uh, my favorite are, are the history plays as well to commemorate the 450th anniversary of his birth uh, bbc did the hollow crown and they did it as a miniseries so they did richard ii henry 401 henry 42 henry 5 with you know actors carrying over wow and now they're getting ready to do what they're calling hollow crown part two which will be the three henry sixes and richard the third right and with uh, Cumberbatch is playing Richard III. So like they're, they're, they're able to tap that in. And I was like, yeah, we might be able to make a single movie out of the Henry VI, but we can make it into TV. Yeah. So there are these cool other versions coming out. Yeah, but they still need the Cumberbatch and they need the Selling yes. Boys. Like they need Michael right. Fessbender to headline this new Macbeth. I know, which I haven't seen yet, which I want to see. Yeah, well, if it was out before now, I think we'd probably would be, be exactly. talking about that one. Yeah. But, uh, but it is the sugar to help the medicine go down. I love the language. I've studied Shakespeare, yeah. so I, I, I'm into it. But I realize as somebody coming out, if you don't know your <laughs> Greek mythology and your Bible verse. Yeah, like, yeah no, it's uh, true. It, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that, even still for me today, I, I have the complete art works so that I can make reference to what certain people mean. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse than an actor saying lines that they don't, don't understand. understand. Absolutely right. And even if, an, I, I feel, even if an audience member doesn't necessarily get a historical reference or they get the exact word because it's a bit archaic to our ear. If the actor has done the research and the homework and they know what they're saying, that comes across. It reflects. Yeah. And you can yeah. get their intention. It's like, exactly. They might as well be speaking like babble in some respects to some people, but if the performance is good and the context yeah. is there for you, it still can be amazing. Yeah. And that's, that's impressive. It's kind of a blind alley for me. I mean, I don't have anywhere near the stage experience that you do, Scott, but like, I, 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 I don't have a horrible resume. I've done Not some at all. Sorkin. I've done some Neil Simon. I, I've done, you know. <laughs> and you, you write mighty fine dialogue, Larry. Really. I, I, yeah. I did Chekhov, but I've not ever really done Shakespeare. That's interesting, hey? Yeah. I've never done. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Pam. Mm-hmm. said that uh, once when we were in a classroom that there was something painfully <laughs> contemporary about me. Doing Shakespeare? Yes. Painfully <laughs> contemporary. So that was as nice as she could sugarcoat it. <laughs> well, then, but then right there, though, depending on the uh, production, like a director, as some of these films can attest, right, you put them in a modern context, who knows, right? That could work in the right production and the right director and the right cast. <laughs> Well, most of my work uh, <laughs> subsequent to our school has been in dinner theater, and you cannot sell Titus Adronicus. <laughs> yeah, and now we're bringing out the pie. <laughs> Meat pie is on the menu. All right. Well, uh, maybe we should. T- I'm just going to list the movies that we're going to talk about, unless yeah. there's something else you want to say by way of introduction, because no, we could do oh, this no. whole long I know morning. we just catch up and have coffee and <laughs> keep boring people. I'm like, when are they going to talk about the fucking movies? Um, we're going to talk about, just in the random order that you placed them right there. Yeah. Um, the Kenneth Branagh version of Hamlet, this very epic production, lavish production. Uh, Ray Fiennes' uh, directorial debut. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was his first film. Coriolanus. Um, we have Julie Taymor's take on Titus, starring the difficult but very talented <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> 
We have a, a really interesting take on Richard III, starring Ian McKellen. We have an Australian take on uh, Macbeth from the director of Romper Stomper. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then we have uh, Romeo and Juliet, a la 90s, which we will have an interesting conversation about, I am sure. Yeah. I have a weird memory associated with you and that movie. Well, that have been around the, the time that we met. Yeah, that would have been right about the time that, that Baby Sky and Baby Larry were <laughs> <laughs> pushing props around the North Studio. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's do this. Mm-hmm. To be or not to be. Castle Rock Entertainment proudly presents Hamlet, the most celebrated drama in the English language, seen in glorious 70-millimeter format, adapted for the screen and directed by Kenneth Branagh. I was already kind of a fan of Kenneth Branagh, and uh, he had sort of broken on this side of the ocean. He'd made Dead Again. Yep. And uh, he did this big, lavish version of Hamlet. Yep. But I was like already a fan from his Henry V. Fifth, and this, yep. like, as much as I tend to prefer the histories, I love Bernard's version of Much Ado About Nothing. I know. Actually, it's <laughs> I think it might be my favorite. In spite of the sure. presence of Keanu Reeves. It, it, like, <laughs> but if you're going to cast... Let's, let me say painfully contemporary. <laughs> But he's, if you're going to cast Canoe as somebody <laughs> in that play, it's going to be Don John. John. That's, That's the role. The role. Yeah. That's the one. But anyway, I, I was already a fan, but I don't think Bernard was quite Bernard as he is today uh, yeah. yet. Um, and, you know, he was in his 30s and he was mounting this ridiculous, expensive, extravagant production of Hamlet. Yeah, and didn't he do it in 70 millimeter, 70, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's actual film, but like each square of the film is practically the size of a postcard, right? Right. It's like IMAX level. Yeah. And it, well, it's not very popularly used because it's expensive and the aspect ratio is strange. Right. It, that's why uh, getting a, even a DVD copy of this is kind of pricey to this day. Right, right. Um, anyway, uh, it's an ambitious... I think you have to have real ego to play Hamlet. <laughs> in a way to play Hamlet just because it's like the most, quote, difficult role. Yeah. And then on top of it, throw Direct the directing it. it. On top of it, put like this extra layer of complexity into the shooting. Yeah. Like, it was completely ambitious. Yeah. My name is Kenneth Branagh. Look at my balls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember going to see it. And I remember it even had an intermission. Like, they, they tried to make it feel like a theatrical you know, sort David of Lean, uh, Lawrence of Arabia movie where you actually had to take a break in the middle. <laughs> it's so long. And they were going to do the complete Hamlet. There's, like, even scenes in here that people debate whether or not are legit. <laughs> There's a whole sequence with the Gerard Depardieu that some say shouldn't be there or should. Right. Um, yeah. Star-studded, lavish, like I said, and uh, in the typical Bernal way, uh, I do tend to like the man, but he is in your face. He is yep. big, and that's why he's a good fit for Shakespeare. Yeah. I think it works way more than it doesn't, although I have a few reservations. You're the expert, so I'm going to throw the ball over to you. Uh, right. How do you think uh, Bernal t- did with this, the quote, most difficult and popular of Shakespeare's work? It was interesting having rewatched it, having not seen it for many years, and actually gaining more experience doing and reading and studying and directing Shakespeare than when I watched it right. the last time. Like I've owned it on VHS, you know, my 
double VHS copy yeah. for, for years. So it had been a while since I'd seen the whole thing in its entirety. And of all the, the six that we watched, it was the only one where I didn't sit down and watch it, rewatch it in one viewing because it's, it was it's so long. Um, I still enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I recall myself enjoying it when I watched it last. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. And really, I think it came down to the acting more than anything. It's fairly uneven, the picture, I found. Um, not that I don't think you shouldn't have mixes of, you know, it shouldn't be like, oh, everyone should be British. Yeah. Not, I actually like it when people shake Mix it, it up. up. Yeah. Like Sam Mendes did the Richard III with Kevin Spacey. They did their bridge project. It was like half American, half British. And they right. didn't do it. Who cares what they sound like? It's how yeah. they sound. But They're it, still it, delivering the same text. Exactly. But there was moments of like, oh, yeah, Jack Lemmon. Just, yeah. Yeah. It just didn't come across the screen the same way. We are and, on the same page. There's, yeah. there, there's interesting casting. And like I said, we talked briefly about Much Ado. Sort of the casting of Keanu Reeves that helps to sell the product. But he's not really great at delivering Shakespeare, right? Yeah. I love Jack Lemmon. I love <laughs> Jack <laughs> no, Lemmon. my favorite <laughs> But like, he does not deliver the lines. Like it just, it, he, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And he takes you out of it. Yeah. He's only in it for a scene, but he takes you out of it. Yeah, exactly. And... Even people who I think do really well. I'm not a huge Charlton Heston fan. That's a controversial statement to some people. No, I know what you mean, though. I think that he's really actually good as the playmaster in yeah. this. Yeah. But the fact that it's Charlton Heston is just somehow in itself <laughs> distracting. Yeah, it's like, it's Moses. <laughs> what I appreciate about is some of the aesthetic choices. I like yeah. that the you know uh, confrontation with uh, Kate Winslet's Ophelia happens in a hall of mirrors. Yeah. It sort of feels like it's on the nose, but it's also really kind of strangely perfect. Yeah. I love the scale and spectacle of Hamlet's vision of the ghost at the beginning of the movie. Um, you know, you didn't really get the feeling like they were playing the is he or isn't he crazy i really got the feeling in this version hamlet saw a scary <laughs> <ghost>. <laughs> yeah. 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 so no missing that with kenneth yeah um and where i did have some problems with some of the distracting casting like the robin williams who i love but again Osbridge. he just he yeah. just take me out of it um uh there are people who i think kind of nailed it i love Kate Winslet's Ophelia. Yeah. Typically, you see Ophelia as she's pulling handfuls of hair out of her head and screaming and pounding her heart and big and huge. Yeah. And Winslet goes the total other direction and makes her really quiet. Yeah. And really kind of scary in her madness. And uh, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, it was the one that, the scene, it, it was a scene where I kind of was I'm like, oh, I didn't like that, but then I loved it by the end when she comes to Polonius, when she comes to her dad and she kind of explains, you know, like, what just happened off screen, off right. stage, like you know, Hamlet came and he kind of was seemed weird and he had his you know, his double it was so all undone. Sad. And so she she's kind of almost reenacting it for yeah. Polonius as she's talking, and I was like, oh god, can't she just say it? But there's a moment then when Polonius says to her, um, like, "Well, what did you do to make him do to do this?" And the way she plays the response of, "I just did what you told me to do, which yeah. was not." Be with him. Yeah. Like, it was just this great daughter father moment. What you said exactly, and look what happened, asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm like, oh, that was nice. Like there's those great moments that feel contemporary yeah. to our eye, but it's completely in a classical setting. Yeah, and I think Derek Jacoby nails mm -hmm. it. <laughs> like uh, I think, uh, and I think Bernal himself is very strong. He's in the middle of the, this crazy storm that he is orchestrating, and I think considering, you know. Um, 
I don't know how to how to say you know that this is an amazing Hamlet or this is a, a not amazing Hamlet. In a way, just doing Hamlet is itself an yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there's moments where I felt like ah, oh, he's a bit self-indulgent in terms of you know how he's playing it up. What I found interesting, I won't dovetail into other ones yet so much, but the the decision that the actors and or directors would have made in each film of okay, if we are on stage in a theater, this is a soliloquy. Yeah. We're going to turn and we're just going to talk to an audience member. On film, it's like you got to make that decision. Am I going to look in the camera yeah. when I do these soliloquies? Am do I talking or, or am I just talking to myself? And I suppose even today, in, you know, quite often in theater productions, you'll have that conversation. How are we addressing the soliloquies? Am I stepping out and actually talking to the audience? Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting. And you know, watching the Brano one, for the most part, almost all the soliloquies are you know, just talking to himself. Yeah. He doesn't look in the camera. I think there's, I'm trying to remember now, I think there might be a couple moments where he kind of... Winks a little bit. Yeah, but for the most part, it's just him. Yeah. And I'm curious too, both with Henry V and with Hamlet, he did the films after he played the part on stage. Like he went on to direct and make Henry V after he had done it first first on stage. And I know, I think Derek Jacobi actually directed him in Hamlet. Right. Before he made this film, so it kind of makes sense that you know he and Jacoby worked together a lot, and to this to this day, I think the, the Winter's right. Tale that he just put on in London now, Jacoby's in it, right? And um, so it, it, they work well together, I find, even if they're not on screen together, they, they're from they're in the same world, right? Um, what but bugged me too, and I was like, man, it was like when I was looking at the case coming back over here. You know, they got Billy Crystal on the back, and they got Jack Lemmon. You know, yeah. somebody they got the names. I'm like, these people play small parts. Yeah. Not that they're not important parts, no. but like, there's no mention of the guy who plays Horatio. There's no guy, <laughs> no mention of the guy who plays Laertes. No. Like, it's like, and they're good actors. No, and again, yeah. that's just selling selling the product. Yeah. Now, I'm going to call this episode The Bloody Works of William Shakespeare. So if there's any genre fans out there who are still uh, listening to this, yeah. uh, let's sell this. Yeah. Let's sell Hamlet to the Nightmare on Elm Street crowd. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that's what yeah. I'm going to say. I, I like the film. Again, Like it's a long sit, but it's sort of in a, that way the closest to what a theatrical experience is. Yeah. You go to see a production of Shakespeare, you're in there for a sit, but there's something about a live show that will engage you more directly than even the most amazing film will. I yeah. Thing, personally yeah. Yeah. Uh, biased <laughs> but 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 that's what I believe yeah yeah this is a tale about revenge and supernatural yeah. and and violence yeah and like most Shakespearean plays it ends with a pile of corpses oh, on the lots board. of dead bodies <laughs> yeah uh, so is it scary well I don't know if I would make that case but yeah. It is, in some ways, a genre exercise. And I think one, if one chose to, could do a production of Hamlet, or especially Titus or Macbeth, yeah. that was intensely frightening, yeah. and that would appeal to the horror crowd. It yeah. just might limit you from other audience members. Yeah, no, exactly. That's not how you do it. <laughs> exactly. But what does that even mean, right? How are you supposed to do these plays? No, but you're right. I, I, it's funny, right? Quite often we'll take some of these stories for granted because we'll have studied them and whatnot. There's something I always remind myself. There's always someone out there who hasn't seen this before. Yeah. It might be rare, yeah. but uh, I'm a friend of my wife's from high school. Her husband came and they saw Hamlet at Shakespeare in Saskatchewan. It was the year that our friend Matt played Hamlet. All right. And, friend of the show. And uh, friend of the show. And he, our our friend's husband had never read it. 
in high school, just the way his high school years fell. They never studied it. And it slipped through the cracks. And so his mind was absolutely blown <laughs> when it got to the end. Like he turned and when he came, they came back to our place because they were staying at our at our apartment overnight. And he's like, everyone fucking died. Yeah. I was like, yeah, man, wouldn't it, what it would have been like 400 some years ago to go see it. And not, you know, yeah, it was maybe based on Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy. So you might have a sense of what would be coming, but not knowing the carnage yeah, that is forthcoming. Yeah. yeah. Like, I wish, I only wish I could see some of these plays not knowing what's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, getting it back to the yes. Renaud's Hamlet. Um, like I said, a lot more works than doesn't. Uh, the people who are famous in the supporting characters, like, roles, like, get the focus. But there are people who have become subsequently famous that show up in the background, too. Rufus Sewell is in here. Yeah. And, um, uh, Timothy Spall uh, yeah. plays, I can't, I can't remember which one. He's either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. I think he's Rosencrantz. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like the timeline. It's it's sort of set in like some sort of land of the lost sort of cross section of yeah. history, <laughs> where there is like sort of you know, ascots and you know powder rifles, but yeah. there's also swords and there's also this sort of regal formality. Yeah, like it's 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 all over the place, but it's still of its own world. Yeah. Um, it's a weird thing with aesthetic, and I'm going to talk about that later when we're talking about like Titus. Yeah. When you're when you're making sort of aesthetic choices for the movie. Yeah. And you got to do it. Yep. But I got to know why they're there. Like I, in, in some way, I have to either like it feels all of a piece, or like I'm on board with it. Right. I couldn't tell you every corner of this world and like what different periods they were drawing from. Yeah. But nothing stuck out anywhere that said that shouldn't be there. This all made sense. Yeah. I was more drawn out, like we said about. Strange casting voices or, or, or star, star casting. Yeah. That's the thing that would break me out of the language and break me out of the movie momentarily. Yeah. Um, so I think that works, and I think that's a fine art, because you can do with Shakespeare, as we said before, anything, anything you want. You could set this in outer space. You could set yeah. this in hell. You could set this in elementary school. You could, like, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Public domain. <laughs> yeah. He's been dead long enough now. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, so, I think that's part of the allure too, right? Is that it's constantly being reinterpreted and stuff like that. But I, yeah, I think you're right that it has a unifying whole where you feel like you're in a world from beginning to end. Yeah. It, it's whenever you have to have a sword duel at the end of a show, it, it has to somehow make sense. However, you've constructed it that they would have that. Right. I think we'll talk about an R and J too. They, I think you know, they kind of address that in a clever way. Right. Um, but yeah, with Hamlet, with this world, it's like, okay, they have to have a duel now between Hamlet and Laertes. We've completely set up fencing yeah. throughout the entire movie because you've seen them practicing. You've seen yeah. soldiers practicing doing it. There's things like that where it's, you know, all that's built in. How gentlemen kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> with poison. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think that if you're new to Shakespeare, this Hamlet 96 would be definitely jumping into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. Uh, it is a long sit, and it is balls out Shakespeare. They're not they're not thinning it out. They're not dumbing it down. They're yeah. making it as entertaining and as alive as they possibly can. Uh, but I think that maybe you got to baby step your way to yeah. it. I'm, I think it's rewarding. Yeah. But. Oh, one thing that just occurred to me, I'll just add it too. While we're, I can remember that when the Academy Award nominations came out that year, it was nominated. For best adapted screenplay, which is hilarious, and I just I remember just scratching my head, going, "What? Who's going to beat Shakespeare?" Then? Well, yeah, and like and adapted how? <laughs> like the whole point was they kind of took everything from every version that had been 
printed yeah. from the quarto and the folio of Hamlet, put it all together. It's yeah. like you didn't you didn't adapt really anything. Yeah. Well, you adapted it to be shot as a film instead of a play, but yeah. you didn't change a word of it. It's no. an interesting thing. It's yeah. not like adapting a novel or or, or something exactly. like that, where it's there's a real sort of science to yeah. it. But I still wouldn't snatch any awards away from him either. And his yeah. love for Shakespeare is you know, awesome. contagious, and the fact that he wants to bring it to a younger audience, I'm all for. I'm yeah. a big supporter of Hamlet 96. My name is Caius Martius Coriolanus. If ever again I meet him, he's mine, or I am his. So I've long been a fan of Ray Fiennes. Mm -hmm. uh, always solid actor. Even if he's in a bad movie, he'll be giving a good performance in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, you'll get your money's worth out of Ray Fiennes. Yeah. Sometimes, like when I saw him in the Clash of the Titans remake or anything like that, I kind of feel a little bit God, embarrassed for him yeah, and stuff like that. I forgot he was even in those. I haven't seen the one. Um, There's Six Degrees of Separation, right? Sam Worthington, who we'll be talking about go. later. <laughs> um, of all of the Shakespearean plays that have been adapted here, this is the one that I may have to call on you for the most help for, because, right. to be honest, I was not very familiar with Coriolanus. Yeah, well, not, and not many people are, um, which I think, which is, I think it's fantastic that he even made it. Yeah. Got it made. Again, it's another example of where he was in a production of it, uh, I think, three or four years ago. Oh, actually, you know what? I think it was even longer now that I think about it. And it was something that he's been, I know that he's been trying to do since that. He's like, been stewing on it yeah. for a while. Like, okay, how do we make it as a film? And then since he, again, like Brana, directed and acted the lead in it. You know, and it was his first up. film. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, obviously he's been in lots of films, but I'm sh I would think, I can't know for sure, not knowing the man, but I would think, man, oh man, to be able to go, okay, I know what I'm going to do for my first film. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do Shakespeare, one that most people don't even know. Which sort of gives it a curiosity quality right yeah. there. Yeah. But honestly, I, I don't even remember. I, I may not have even read the play before I watched it. Yep. And uh, I've only ever seen one production of it. Yeah. When Chris, uh, my wife and I, Christy, we went to Stratford on a delayed honeymoon trip a few years after we got married. It was 2006, it would have been. We made a point of going through. And so the first thing I ever saw at Stratford was Colin Fiore playing Coriolanus nice. at Stratford. But to this day, that's the only production. Yeah that I've ever seen. And part of the reason I made a point of going to see it was I don't know when the next time I'm going to see a production of this play is going to be. I wonder if the reason for that might be the low amount of likable characters that we have in yeah. this movie. <laughs> now, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to yeah. Coriolanus, especially as portrayed by Ray Fiennes here. And again, I'm basing this as off my first pass, yeah. so uh, do forgive my ignorance. But <laughs> what I sort of see, the themes that I connected with here, is this tale of this great warrior yeah. who has been bred to fight and protect his land, yeah. and who is amazing at it, yeah. and who after a earned and noble victory uh, is basically crowned king as a reward. And 
this sort of question to me is if you are bred for battle, does that mean you are necessarily a good leader? Right. Do the things that make you good on the battlefield make you good in politics? I would argue maybe no, no. at least in this. <laughs> and uh, there's also interesting stuff having to do with the mob mentality. There's yeah. these two peripheral characters whose names I do not remember right yeah. now. Well, I don't but, think you actually get their names. I think they're just usually referred to as like the, the two senators. Or the two Yeah, these yeah. political agents who don't like the idea of this guy being in charge, perhaps rightfully. Yeah. but are so able to steer a mob. Yeah. A mob is basically a mob. What they want is a leader and a victim. And uh, they provided that for them. Yep. <laughs> right? So who are we cheering for? Who do, do we want Coriolanus to lead? Would that be the best thing for the people? Do we like that the people are that easily manipulated? Um, it's. I like the themes. I think that the performances are very strong. I would argue that perhaps the entire movie is stolen by Maggie Smith. <laughs> oh, Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah, sorry, Vanessa yeah. Redgrave. I yeah. think Vanessa Redgrave may have stolen the entire movie as far as performances go. But if there's a weakness in this in the film, uh, again, it's like I'm not sure who I'm anchoring with. Yeah. And and uh, I don't know if that's a problem of the play or if that's a problem of the film. I don't think it's a problem with the film. I think that that's inherent in the play. And I think Shakespeare... For me, anyways, especially in his later plays, which Coriolanus is one of, he pushes that envelope more and more of like, oh, well, obviously this play is in support of this. It's like, really? Is it? Right. Take a look at that again. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I guess it's in support of it. Wait a minute. It doesn't seem to be supporting. He's usually asking more questions and not giving answers. Yeah. And I think that's what I do like about Coriolanus as a play is even he himself, right? He's like, I don't, I don't like people. No, I don't like talking to them. I'm, why are you trying to make me do this? I don't want to do it. And right. there's all these other political reasons and how they appear to the neighboring countries and their enemies. Like, well, but if you're, but if you're leading us, no we one's going to, yeah, yeah, no one's going to try to fuck with us. <laughs> and uh, he gets kind of convinced to do it. But then here's, so here's this guy who's has a pretty good understanding of himself and just won't lie. Yeah. And he, he doesn't play politics. No, he at has all. no time Yet, for it. Yet he's a complete mama's boy. Yeah. And in the end, that ends up kind of being part of his downfall because when he comes back to raise all fucking hell, yeah. his mom kind of convinces him, like, don't do this. And then he ends up having to turn his back on the people that used to be his enemies that are now supporting him to come back. Yeah. And then because he does that, then now you've pissed off the people that... Everybody hates you now. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave. I don't know why I called her Maggie Smith because I'm an idiot. Uh, well, Maggie's in Richard the Third. She's so. in Richard the Third. That's why. Yeah. yeah. Vanessa Redgrave, I think, is an interesting thing. Like, uh, I think she is obviously the most powerful female figure in, yeah. in this play. Yeah. And it's pretty short on them. Jessica Chastain plays uh, his wife. wife and yeah. Honestly, it is sort of a kind of a side. Not very strong yeah. female role. It really isn't. Yeah. It's nice that they got Jessica Chastain, and she was probably thinking this is a cool pedigreed cast to be a part of. But yeah. she doesn't have a lot to do. No. Redgrave is the mother. She's like this this thing about female power in Shakespeare. If you are cursed by your mother, yeah. if your mother calls you down in Shakespeare, yeah. you are capital F fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. That that's why like, you said Maggie Smith. Yeah, we're come back to this again. Yeah. Uh, Richard the Third, yeah. but um, I, 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 yeah, I, I knew that scene obviously from Richard the Third because it's such a great scene. Um, but it was again new to me in Coriolanus, yeah. and it was sort of almost like ringing that same bell. But in a way, 
it seemed much more powerful because of their bond. In yeah. a way, those two characters can only relate to each other. Yeah. And I don't really get, like, it's not like the Hamlet that he wants to sleep with his mother or whatever yeah, ancestral yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. I don't think it's like that. It's like yeah. she bred a warrior. Well, and she is proud to have bred a warrior. And that's one of the things that's great about the film is it's very much that she is military yeah. herself. Oh, yeah. um, you know, quite, I think, often in the play, if you're you know, set it, setting it in historical Roman times of when you think, like, okay, he, this person really did exist and they lived from this year to this year, yeah. you're not going to see mom. Yeah. Um, Playing that harder role. Yeah, exactly. But if you're in this contemporary setting, this kind of mid-European no man's land yeah. that we're kind of talking about, like you know, we're talking Rome and stuff like that, but we're not in Italy. It feels vaguely yeah. Middle East, but yeah. not necessarily. Uh, yeah. Again, it's it's this netherworld. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's modern, but it's formal. Uh, the other performance I wanted to talk about, and just the the actor who is an enigma to me, Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler. <laughs> we didn't even talk about this in advance. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> But like the thing is, is I just I cannot I cannot wrap my head around Gerard Butler. I know sometimes I think he sucks. Sometimes I think he's okay. But generally, I just can't get a hold on Gerard Butler. <laughs> and uh, it, it it was interesting seeing him do the Shakespeare. And again, his character seems to me to be this guy who lost a battle. Yeah. And has basically got some sour grapes over that. You know, yeah. he's got his arms folded and his pout his pouty lip out because he lost, and he fucking hates Coriolanus yep. because of that. Mainly just because he lost, lost right? Uh, and I guess fair enough. But again, I at the end when they have the big confrontation and Coriolanus goes to his inevitable tragedy. Yeah, I don't feel any kind of victory for the Gerard Butler character. In no. fact, as portrayed here, it seems almost cowardly. Well, and that was that was my my one, like oh, that's how they ended it. Like, I, it was that was the one thing I didn't like about the film, and and maybe that's why they made the choice they did. But instead of it just being a standoff between these two arch rivals, yeah, he, well, he even sends a group of guys with knives. To and I guess that's kind of inherent in the play too. But it just seems so anticlimactic in the film that he you know gets out of the, out of the room. Don't want to ruin it for all the viewers. <laughs> we do talk spoilers. We do talk spoilers. Um, but you know, he gets out of the truck and kind of walks down the street towards them, and he's got to know that they're not going to be too happy about this because he just went in and said to his mom, "Okay, I'll call the whole thing off." Yeah. And they're they're left holding the bag, going, "Well, what the hell? Like, yeah. They're just about to march in, and we've come pretty far. Yeah, <laughs> just turn it off on? at this point." And you know, then he kind of says some angry words as Coriolanus does, and then but it's it's over so quickly. Yeah, you know, I guess you know you're being. But I don't know the the production I saw. It wasn't just a you know four or five guys that kind of surrounded him. It was that mob mentality again, and right. they fucking ripped Colm apart. Right. You know, and obviously they did it over the trap. Right. So when the, all the people kind of came in and whatever, you know, Colm would have he would have been gone, and they were pulling out part like he was literally ripped Rended apart. And so that left. An an impression. Yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah. that was an ending. Yeah, <laughs> he's not. He's not gonna be uh, living through that. Exactly. There's no need to call a medic. He's he's, yeah. he's dead. <laughs> and there's things, just things too, like Gerard Butler too. Like physically, he fits so well. I had a hard time understanding him mm-hmm. at times, and then I'm like, and then I had to go, okay, do I really think Ray Fiennes could take Gerard Butler? And you know. I think they actually had a really great fight in the first half of the movie. It was yeah. really well choreographed and it was interesting. But it's like at the end of the day, it's like, man, I think he would kick Rafe's ass. But yeah. Rafe looked pretty good. Generally speaking, I like how the violence was handled in this movie. Uh, like, it was brutal, but yeah. like the fights were 
struggles, you yeah. know. Uh, the, yeah. the, the formality in the language was not reflected in the world. It was a tough, sort of yeah. rough, real world. And there were some bloody knife fights and people, you know, yeah. die badly. And uh, in a way, that sort of contemporizes the movie. And you can't do that kind of stuff on stage. And yeah. I do think some of it is actually dramatically helpful. Yeah. And I think, too... It's not film... just bloodlust on my part. <laughs> the other thing that it did really well, that sometimes the films don't do well for the plays is the passage of time. Mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, you know, he goes away, he kind of, you know, as he's banished and he wanders and he grows a beard. Like you can do some of those things. I guess if you have the budget in a play, you can do that kind of stuff too. You can yeah. get your spirit gum and you can put on a fake beard. But it's but easier. In terms of just clear. a kind of montage of giving one look and then it kind of gives way to another establishment and like, okay, now we're here. It did give the sense of, man, he's been out there a long time yeah. and no one knows where he is. That I thought that was really portrayed really, really well. And sometimes you can't get that in a play. Because yeah. you're just going from one scene to the next, one scene to the next. So generally, yeah. fairly positive things to say about uh, Coriolanus. Like I said, yeah. um, the fact that I was not as familiar with it uh, gave me a little bit of trepidation coming into it. Yeah. It was basically Shakespeare and the, and the cast that, that attracted me to it. But um, I kind of surprised myself with how well, this is going to rank. Yeah, other than the end, I was like, you know, I was like, oh, I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think it helps that he played it before. So he kind of had that yeah. decided how he was going to approach it before he actually uh, shot it. There's a few aesthetic choices that are going to be seen again in some of the modernized uh, Shakespeare. In a way, I think it does make sense, but uh, a lot of sort of the exposition speeches yeah. are handed off to newscasters. Yes. And I think that's kind of brilliant. We'll see it again in... in, in RNJ, RNJ does it but a lot, yeah. uh, it, it's a nice way to speed up the uh, information, and we can get this newscast while we're, yeah. all those images are coming through. And uh, we are being spoon-fed, you know, exposition, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily feel like it. Yeah. So. The other thing too, I thought this just popped into my head because the mob is such an important character as a whole in Coriolanus too. It was nice in a play that there aren't many female roles. A lot of like the kind of lead mob characters yeah. were cast with women like they, they were all part of that group so it's yeah. like okay good it's not just this male voice that's just constantly there. it's there a lot don't get me wrong but it was kind of nice to see some some well, female voices it's in interesting that the, the woman who sort of runs the mob we will say sort of the, the voice yeah. for the mob she seems like a powerful strong figure yeah and yet much like Coriolanus himself is very easily manipulated yeah yeah so yeah. Brian, Brian Cox Brian Cox is very oh, yes. very good in the film like, no, like I don't think so I'm just trying to remember back I think that that's a I th- and I think the decision of that character's end in the film I think that is an artistic choice as I recall I don't think that's inherent in the play oh really I think it's one of those things I could be wrong on this because it's a play I don't know as well as some of the others but it's like you know Adam and as you like it's like where did the old guy go he just he's just not in he the play anymore the play yeah, and it might be because that actor has to come back and play another character in the second half of the play it could be something as technical as that but obviously they've made a, a really specific choice in how to bring an end to the storyline for Brian Cox's character and it's I think it's pretty powerful and we liked him so yeah to, to... he's kind of there is the one guy we probably yeah, I did guess like if you could because yeah. he's earnestly trying to do the right thing throughout the film he's yeah. not run by his ego he's run with what's best for everyone so. yeah yeah, uh, always a big fan of Brian Cox. Yeah. So, good times. Well, good times, is that the right way to say it? <laughs> <laughs> Hail, Rome, 
victorious. He was the proudest prisoner of the Goths, that we may sacrifice his flesh. Victorious Titus, spare my firstborn son. Religiously, they ask a sacrifice. I'll find a day to massacre them all. Away with her. The forest walks wide and spacious for rape and villainy. This was thy daughter. He that wounded her hurt me more than had he killed me dead. <laughs> so, uh, Titus Adronicus, or mm -hmm. as it is called here, Titus, Titus yeah. uh, is uh, probably the most bonkers. Shakespeare play, I might, I would argue. I mean, not that there isn't other bonkers Shakespeare plays. <laughs> <laughs> but this one definitely brings the red and is, I mean, it does deal with the themes of vengeance and madness like many of his plays do, but it's just on a different sort of level. Everything is on the table in Titus. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of his, uh, his early plays and one of the kind of thoughts or stories that's floating around is that at that point... In the, you know early 1590s that that was what was popular at that point these kind of like really bloody revenge plays whether they be roman or not yeah and the notion that shakespeare's like all right fuck it fine yeah. i'm gonna out revenge yeah. <laughs> everybody else's play like yeah. i think it is it does have the highest body count you know, you know, if you're and not counting soldiers that would have died in big battles, but yeah. in terms of like made, like named characters and people <laughs> to make appearances and then just die, yeah. like there are dozens and just body parts on stage. You yep, know? yep. <laughs> you know, people exactly. with their limbs Loosely cut up, up. And hands stuff like going out the window, tongues. Yeah, yeah. It's... and uh, again, I think it would sort of produce its all sorts of interesting uh, obstacles to do a stage presentation of it. Yeah. So in a way, uh, film production does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And Julie Taymor, who's most famously a like, very lavish stage director yeah. and <laughs> infamously involved with the Spider-Man Spider <laughs> Turn Off the Dark or whatever it was called, Turn uh, Off the Dark. Debacle. Yeah. Um, she's an interesting filmmaker. Like This came out in 1999, which was just an amazing year for films. Yeah. And I think that uh, as a result, not because this is a, not a good film, but just got crowded out by other things, a lot of people missed this. And um, as far as her expressing her visual aesthetic, which is very, very accomplished, she can yeah. make a pretty picture, and tying it to a story, I think this may be her best work. I would agree, actually. Um, there are things, again, like I, always, I always add a but whenever I do one of these complimentary <laughs> models. There are a few things in the movie that I question. Uh, I'm not sure why they're there. We were yeah. talking about the aesthetic choices when we were talking about Hamlet, that it all felt of a piece of a world. Uh, there is this little boy that we kind of yeah. anchor to that carries us through this movie. Yeah. And he starts out as sort of a little boy that gets sucked into an ultimate universe, it seems. And he's always in the backdrop of scenes, and he's always our witness. We're sort of like seeing this whole thing happen through his eyes. Yeah. And the deeper we get into the movie, the more we find out all of a sudden, no, he is actually of this world. He's a character in this world. Yeah. He has lines. All of a sudden, he's like the nephew of Titus Atronicus. Yeah. And uh, I didn't understand... You know, I didn't understand what he added to the movie. I didn't understand that aesthetic choice. There's a very sort of powerful boy walking slow motion into the light, one of the big yeah, big the moments end. in the film. And part of me thinks that that's why. She got the image of that shot of that little boy walking into the light and then built that whole mechanism to justify it. Yeah. Uh, 
but that has nothing to do with the play at hand. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do. I, I yeah, and it, I love this movie. I love it. Love it so much. But you're right in terms of that's kind of my similar hang up in that it takes me a while to sit down and try to think. Okay, what what's he trying to say with it? And and while I think I know to a certain point, there's still some things because it's so different. Like the opening scene is him at this, you know, Formica, Formica kitchen table playing with his toys. Yeah. Um, and then he gets scooped up and taken out and he's in this coliseum as, they, as they're returning from war. I'm like, okay, I don't understand. What I don't understand is just the, con- the contemporary kitchen table. Yeah. Uh, unless it's just a way to introduce him. The ending makes sense to me in that because of when it returns, it, all of a sudden we're like we're back in that that Coliseum Stadium location, and he walks out of it. Yeah. So th- you know that makes sense. Like, oh, he's been brought into this arena of violence, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the film, he t- picks up the baby and, and Alex and to walk out. I think that makes that. I'm like, okay, those two bookends themselves make sense to me but are they related to what comes between yeah and i think in a way for me and again i have very positive things to say about this yeah in a way i'm getting this out of the way before we talk about (laughs) all the cool stuff uh it's shoehorning a happy feeling ending to a play that is just not that yeah uh in a way she went so dark and so hard to the movie that she felt like she had to let us out the other side and I think that Titus is dark. I think that this, like, it, it, I talked about in Coriolanus, who are we cheering for? Everybody is deeply flawed in this movie. But yeah. Titus Adronicus, uh, you know, follows the rules of war. You know, he comes home with these captured noble people and has to sacrifice the eldest son to the gods, despite the, you know, protests of his yeah. mother. And his mother ends up being basically this trophy for the new for the new king and uh is given this position of power all of a sudden and has a real grudge against Titus this guy who killed his son yep but i mean he was doing what he was meant to do and when he got once he gets back his back against the wall he tries to retain his nobility for yeah. as long as possible yeah and because even though he makes terrible decisions and he yeah. does bad things that's his goal I like Titus in a way that uh, I guess I didn't anchor with Coriolanus. Yeah, no, that makes sense. No, it is, and it, it, you know, it comes down to choice too. Like, I, I, sidebar of a you know, story that does relate. I, I have been in a production of Titus. I played uh, Bassianus, the the younger brother who's married to Lavinia, okay. Titus's daughter. And um, when we did the production, uh, it was Darko Tresniak who directed it, and he he just won the Tony for. Um, Gentleman's Guide to Murder last year, and he's, he's does he's does amazing visual work, and it was a very visual production, stylized violence, and um, when we got and we were figuring out what to do with that first scene in terms of when he comes back and he finds out that oh Jesus, while I've been gone, Lavinia has been, been has been is like she's agreed to marry this she's been you know she's decided to get married to the you know the younger son of the emperor who's now dead and. And Saturnine is saying, well, you know, what are you going to, who are you going to pick? And John Vickery played Titus in our production. And it was very much, he just, it was a clear decision. Like, well, he's the older brother. Yeah. So he should be emperor. That's just the way it should be. That's the way it works. 
at the end of the run, John's father passed away, so he had to, he missed the very last performance. To go. We had about two weeks' notice. We right. kind of knew that it was coming. So John was going to be gone. Wayne Best, who's a long-standing company member at Stratford, was the understudy. Filled in. Filled in. And so he knew. And he didn't tell his wife. He says, hey, come to the closing performance. Just come. Just yeah. come. And she shows up and finds out he's playing Titus on the last performance. At first she's pissed that she's sitting by herself. Why am I watching? Oh, my God. Wayne's going on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the last performance. So what are you going to do? You know, and, and I've gone on as an understudy before. You, you play within the, the frame of what you decided, but it's still yours. yours. And on that day, in that performance, when Wayne's Titus found out that I'm marrying his daughter, he was pissed. <laughs> That's not how it works. Yeah, and it was a clear decision for Wayne that day going, I'm picking your older brother yeah. because I don't like this, you marrying my little girl while I was off to war. Yeah. So in terms of just... in making decisions within that framework it can go many different ways and it, in some ways it was a clearer choice it kind of propelled that whole scene and if you just realize oh fuck it i just picked the other brother we I probably wouldn't be in this mess yeah i might be in a different mess but i wouldn't be in this one <laughs> well and uh, titus is portrayed by anthony hopkins in this uh, i do think he's very strong in the movie yeah um i think that he was enjoying the layers of playing some genuine madness against playing some Put on madness, yeah, and I think that he's a good enough actor that I could sort of tell the difference <laughs> between, between the, the two. two. Yeah, uh, the moment where he stabs, lashes out, and kills one of his own sons. Yeah, genuine madness. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, the moment when he sees his son return to him as a head in a jar. Right. Yeah, genuine yeah. madness. But yeah. when he's in the bathtub yelling out the window at yeah. the at the quote spirits, yeah. he's putting on a show, and yeah, we right. know it, and we kind of enjoy the show with him in a way. Yeah, and he's so far gone at that point that he's enjoying it almost to some level. Yeah, yeah. Going, okay, <laughs> and uh, I think that's an interesting choice, uh, and uh, I, I do really like Hopkins in that role. I do find sometimes he can overplay his hand, but because in Shakespeare you're allowed to be so big, he's well suited. Yeah. yeah. He's well suited. And it's, she, I know Julie Tamar, she, did, again, this is kind of a, a, an ongoing theme, it seems like so far. She did direct a stage version of Titus, right. which this, I think, was kind of based on. And the one person that came with her from that production was Harry Lennox, who played Aaron. Okay. And he and he's awesome. Amazing. He's amazing in the movie. And I can see why I can like picture in my head her that meeting with the with the producers going, I have to have yeah. this guy. He seems like a more deeply explored Iago to me mm-hmm. in some ways. In that he is a villain to his core and is okay with it. Yeah. And but then you still get that flip side of you know when he ends up having this baby. Yeah. That he, he be, does... he's still a father and he protects that kid like to the end as best he can yeah 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 uh no and that that might be the performance that steals the movie although there are a lot of really really good performances yeah there are indelible moments in the movie too uh there's well the the daughter who is befouled by the two sons she is raped her tongue is cut out and her hands are removed and confior yeah plays Marshes the marsh yeah. and finds her. That seems amazing visually. And her revelation and him seeing her and her trying to scream but not being able to. And the blood coming out in the wind and yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it is probably one of the more horrifying things I've ever seen in a non-horror movie. Yeah, it is. It is like well, it's just too, burned into my yeah. retina. Yeah. Like it is. And the, a and, powerful the and the tree image. branches that are kind of been stuck where her hands are that kind of look like hands. It's just yeah, it, yeah. And that she lives this this 
tormented existence until her father finally ends up finishing the job. And yeah. it's a horrible scene when that happens, and it seems out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah. uh, he, she has basically been killed, I guess, is, is his position at that point. Yeah. And once she's able to, and that's a, a problem that I think some people have with the play and understand. It's like, why does it take her that fucking long to figure to out. figure out a way to grab a stick and write the names of the, the two people who, that did this to her you'd think that she'd be able to find a way to do it before then because I'm just a guessing that being raped and having your limbs cut off and having your tongue rendered out would be somewhat traumatizing you would think absolutely <laughs> So, you know, that's when those people, you know, they sound like, well, why does it take this? Like, well, it's, it, that's the structure of the play. So yeah. you just live with it. And, you, and, and the actors and the director will make the decisions of why you make those decisions or why a character waits or yeah. what has happened up to that point. There are levels of strange artifice that you have to accept in Shakespeare sometimes. There are Absolutely. things that, like, well, the whole business with the, the, the uh, Jessica Lang and her sons dressing up as these spirits. Yeah. Like... Does she, like, as a plan, that is beyond ridiculous, right? <laughs> I know what we'll do. Like, <laughs> yes, of course, this is a completely rational thing to do. Like, yeah. no, no, yeah, it isn't. No, no, that, that's crazy. This is, this is musical theater. At the, <laughs> yeah. And I like musical theater, but I don't think this is how I would approach yeah. the artist. But you accept it within the movie. Well, Jessica Lang, by the way. Yeah. Is awesome in this movie. Yeah, and there's a, and there's a great example of direct address to the camera that yeah. really works. Like there's some times where she just just turns to the camera and you know it's not playing it up volume. She's just talking, yeah. she's talking across the lens, going, this is, real. "This is what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I'm gonna I can I'm gonna get him." <laughs> um, I have less good things to say about her sons. Uh, yeah, Jonathan Rice Myers and Matthew Rice, I think, are the two. Demetrius yeah. and Kieran. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier about people who are saying Shakespeare lines but not necessarily understanding them. Yeah. There are scenes where I kind of would call them guilty of that. Yeah. Or yeah. where they're just screaming with enthusiasm and energy these lines like, look at me do Shakespeare. Yeah. But I don't understand I don't, what you're saying. I don't, I don't know what they're saying. I don't know what you're saying. And worse than that, I don't believe that you know what you're saying. Yeah. You look the part. And you can sort of babble your way through, like we talked about it. Yeah. But in a way, I think they're kind of failing at the Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and that does take me out of it. Yep. Yep. No, I'm that agree. said, when we have them hooked up uh, upside down and bound, it makes it really, it makes it, it really makes fulfilling. It <laughs> especially fulfilling to see their brutal exit from the film. No more yowling from you two monsters. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're done. You two rapists, evil <laughs> fucking monsters, die just an awful death and. For something so visceral to be enjoyable, I mean, I still think that's an accomplishment. But yeah. that is not how I would have attacked those performances. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that they're my least favorite. Like, uh, Angus McFadden plays Lucius, uh, Titus's oldest son. Yeah. Really like him. Sanest of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we talk about Calm, um, plays Titus's brother, uh, Martius. Great. Yeah. I love, the, I think my favorite scene of the whole movie is after when he's pleading for the life of his two sons that have been implicated in the death of Bassianus. Right. And, you know, none of the senators are listening to him. They just go right on past him. And they've yeah. actually, he's at, literally at a crossroads. Yeah. And you've got, you know, you've got his, he's got his brother, he's got his son, and his, and I think young Lucius, Lucius' son there, you know, who's kind of our outside eyes there. And I think Lav is there too. Or maybe it's just the, yeah, because I think that's when he sees what's happened to her. That's what I, right. that's the scene when Martius brings brings her to him, and it's such an right. amazing visual of him just sitting there in the middle of the road, hitting bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
this noble warrior has been brought to his bottom, and uh, he yeah. will get his revenge yeah. at the cost of yeah. his life and, and everyone. Alan else's. Cumming is beautifully crazy. Yeah, and that's again like uh, he was doing the sort of over the top ish performance, the same thing that we we're talking about the sons. Yeah, but he knew what he was saying. Yeah, and he was making choices that made sense with what he was saying. Yeah. And again, basically the rest of it is just the aesthetics. The, some of the strange, very Art Nouveau helmets that some of them were wearing seemed kind of strangely impractical for combat. They looked cool. Yeah. But like, the, yeah. that was just Julie Tamar saying, you know, it would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And for me, that didn't bother me in this one in that because right from the beginning, it was such a bizarre mishmash of so many things right from the beginning. I'm like, oh, this is what I'm in for. Right. So I was willing to go there, where if had it been, you know, very traditionally accurate togas and stuff for a while, and then all of a sudden it took a left turn, I'd be going, what the hell's going on? I remember thinking in this viewing, because I think different things every time yeah. I watch it, and that again is another one of the brilliant things about Shakespeare. Uh, I thought that maybe the reflection of the kids' toys that he was playing with, right. in, in a way, because... Perhaps this was the game that he was playing with his toys. I don't know exactly, but yeah. uh, every now and then hints of the boys' world will, will, will break into the, this artifice. But artifice on top of artifice. Right. Uh, I really, really like Titus. It is a bitter pill. Yeah. It is visually amazing. The performances, for the most part, are strong. I mean, I'm yep. saying I recommend Titus. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. anything else you want to say about No, I, I love this. I love this movie a lot. Yeah, it's great. Sweet. Richard the Third. He was the dark heart of a royal family. I have too long borne your blunt upbraidings and bitter scoff. Who would stop at nothing to take the throne. I see the ruin of my family. I can smile. And murder while I smile. His ambition is masked in passion. Not kill my husband. Your beauty would make me undertake the death of all the world. His hatred is disguised as love. I will send you to my brother Richard. Your brother Richard hates you. Chop off his head. <laughs> his brutality is hidden in nobility. I've no more sons of the royal blood for you to slaughter. You have a daughter. All right. Richard the Third. No history play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fun fact: I saw a stage presentation of Richard the oh, Third in think Winnipeg. With wasn't it with Hurt? Wasn't William it? Hurt, right. and they did a talkback session after the after the play, and I got to talk to the man. Yeah. And uh, so that was very cool, just to be able to talk to William Hurt, uh, and we actually, as opposed to the just a few. Aside, some people got with him. He and I got into a proper back and forth. Cool. In, within that exchange, I think he probably fell in love with me a little bit. But <laughs> the question I posed to him is the same question that I'm going to pose to you. Oh, this yeah. is not necessarily considered a, uh, a history. A lot of people consider this a tragedy. Right. And my position, or the question that I asked him, was from the opening moment of this play, Richard III establishes himself as this huge piece of shit. Right. I am going to manipulate, I am going to murder, I'm going to love doing it, and I'm going to let the audience in on how cunning and smart I am about it. Yeah. So, because he starts off with no noble intention at all, yeah. 
can we honestly call Richard III a tragedy? <laughs> is it tragic that he finally is brought down well after he's done unbelievable damage to his family and I, country? <laughs> I think, looking at the film, it's tough to make that case because the way it's edited and what they've taken out. In the play itself, on the night before the battle of Bosworth Field, he's actually visited by a bunch of ghosts. Um, and not just him, too. Um, Richmond, who's his counterpoint, who eventually is the one that kills him in battle and becomes the next king in terms of the, the Tudor mythology that takes over after right. this line. Um, the way the, the scene is written, and most people edit it no matter what, is the ghosts talk to both of them. Like, and they basically say, you know, I hope you know, we're damning you. Yeah. You know, may may blood come on you, may you die in battle, and then they wish good things for Richmond. It's this kind of terrible thing. The, the table is set yeah. before the battle. And when the ghosts leave, he wakes up as if he's, you know, he's had this nightmare. So he's kind of aware that this has been going on. And he actually does have this great speech. And, uh, you know, is there a murderer here? And then he realizes, I... I am, I, am, I am the murderer. I have killed children. Yeah, have, you know. and, and he, and he kind of goes through, and, and I think, depending on how you play that speech, following the ghosts, probably can dictate whether or not yeah. your production is I guess tragic. we can acknowledge that he is able to acknowledge that he is bad, yeah. but at that point I think he's too much of a villain. Uh, yeah. William Hurt told me that <laughs> his interpretation was that he was playing the same game that everybody else was, that in a way he was one of the more honest characters yeah. uh, in, the, in the play, and that everybody was stabbing each other in the back in the climb for power. Right. He just was kind of open about, about it. it, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I 100% agree with it, but it was cool to see that presentation, yeah. and... Uh, if you're ever in a talkback at a play, ladies and gentlemen, even if a celebrity is there, for God's sake, just ask about the play. Yeah, so many people are fucking asking. I loved her. you in that movie. Yeah. Probably, yeah. So in Children of a Lesser God, a movie that you made thirty years ago, <laughs> did, like no, the talkback session is for the play you just watched. It yeah. made me so uncomfortable. It probably and, made him uncomfortable. And too. It, you definitely, you know, was it just him or was it some of the other cast? No, too? the core cast. There was like right. six or seven actors up on stage. Right. But, uh, no, it was very cool. But I guess we should actually talk about right. this movie. This now movie too. Here. Um, I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that Ian McKellen is a brilliant actor. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> he's been doing amazing he, work for he knows what he's 60 doing. years. So he's been part of the Royal Shakespeare Company yep. forever. And uh, this interpretation, which feels very sort of World War II Nazi, yep. right? Yep. Uh, although not uh, not specifically that, it's definitely emulating that. Yeah, was not a dictator feel absolutely it definitely takes more liberties in that as you say the amount they take away from the the script and the streamlining of the yeah. story it's kind of a race to the finish line in a lot of ways but i think this is an earnest attempt like we were talking about to sell shakespeare to the kids to yeah. make shakespeare as accessible and exciting and crazy as they possibly can and in that respect i think the movie is very successful yeah i just hope that people once they watch the movie actually get to see the whole play. Yeah, because you're right. It's it's one of his longer plays. Richard III is one of the largest roles. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the shortest film... Of the list. Of this, of this list. Yeah. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half, basically. And... Uh, yeah, and that, when I did have issues, if you want to say that, with the film adaptation, it's, it's some of the things that they took out. It's like, oh, how did they... They took Margaret. Queen Margaret. They took her right She's out. She's gone. She's not even in there at all. Yeah. It's like... 
What? Oh my god. But they did leave some very, very, very indelible scenes. Yeah. And they did some really great editing um, in terms of introducing characters when you did. Um, as an example, Tyrrell, who's a small character, really important though, as it exists in the play, he's the one that Richard asks, like, you know, when Buckingham balks at killing the, his nephews. Right. And while Buckingham is off considering what the hell he's going to do, he calls over Tyrrell. So, you know, and in the play, this is the first time you've technically been introduced to this guy. When well, the movie, they take that dialogue and they move it way earlier. And he asks, right. you know, are you, you know, what's your name? And Tyrrell, and I'll, I'll do whatever you command. Yeah. And he becomes one of the two murderers that goes for his brother Clarence in the tower. Correct. I'm like, that, for me, I'm like, that is great editing. If That's I ever do a production, lighting. yeah, and I'm like, I would, you know, so you're not double casting someone to play. Why don't you just make it that guy? Yeah. And he's just a murderer yeah, <laughs> all the way through. That's, that's what he does. Yeah. yeah. For me, like, I'm, I'm getting shivers now thinking about it. That's the kind of stuff I get excited about when I see adaptations and edits of plays, whether it's a film or just a stage production. I'm like, that's a smart way of it's getting that Streamlining and shortcut, you know. Yeah. It's not easy to make theater, especially in Saskatchewan, yep. you know. Uh, so any, any kind of shortcuts that actually help, help the story is... Great. Yeah, it's just one less person you're trying to introduce later on. You've already done it, and he's doing a similar thing. And it's like, oh, he's his man. Yeah. I think the, the important scenes they, they not only did, but did very well. The seduction of this grieving widow. Uh, <laughs> she's, she's literally looking at the corpse of her husband, who was murdered by Richard III, when Richard III walks in, makes her an offer she can't refuse, and sells it to her. Yeah. It's a crazy scene, you know? Uh, the confrontation I talked about with his mother, when he is condemned by his own yeah. mother. Yeah. Like, in Coriolanus, you can see when his mother gets down on his, her knees and starts begging him, everybody is made uncomfortable by that. Like, they cut, yeah. even Gerard Butler doesn't like seeing this, right? <laughs> And, uh, same thing here. Like, the power of those words, he can't deny. Like, it's like someone punched him in the heart. Yeah. The horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse scene. Very famous. Yeah. Brilliantly handled in the film. So, yeah, I concede that they did cut a lot of fat, but yeah. they kept the core. That seduction scene... Uh, well, and even that is a bit of a... It, it's a departure from the play, although it makes sense in the context of this movie, especially the way they frame it at the beginning with Richard, you know, coming through the door with the gas mask on and yeah, shooting, shooting him in the head. Um, in the play, it's not her husband... It's Henry the Sixth, who Richard has also killed. Right. Um, but it's it's her father-in-law, the, the the deceased king that she's mourning in, in right. the streets, and like, well, no one. But they made the decision, like, no, no, we're going to put her in a morgue. Yeah. Standing over the body of her dead husband, and that's going to make it even more. And before difficult. he enters the room, Ian McKellen's going to tell us, check out. Watch what I'm going to do. do. This is like, this is amazing, yeah. and I'm going to do and it. And then when he does it, has his woman ever in this humor been wooed? Yeah. Has woman in this ever humor been won? Yeah. you almost cheering for him at that point just because, you devious son of a bitch. But yeah. uh, again. Yeah. And again, his he's totally direct address yeah. to the camera. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which I love. He's Ferris bueller us. Yeah. Wow, wow. Uh, so positive things to be said about Richard III. A lot of the supporting cast is interesting too. Annette Benning, I always like. I kind of wish she would do more movies. It seems like she does a movie every two or three years for some reason. Yeah. Um, but I do like her. Robert Downey Jr., who was not the most dependable actor at this time, has a charming supporting role and a very shocking death scene. Yeah, and there's a good example. We talk about this when we talk about Mackers too. What the films can do often, and this is an example of it, when you get these characters that die off stage. Yeah. And you just get word of it after. 
quite often with a film you can actually find a way to shoot that and put it in the movie yeah. you don't need the the dialogue you yeah. could do it in a play too i suppose but you have to set it up like it's a really really slick great way of just like oh my god well i guess we won't be seeing him again uh it, this is not the easiest movie to get your hands on unfortunately but i was thinking while i was watching it this time that yeah. if some kids were studying shakespeare and uh thought oh i, I want to do a movie because it'll be easier than reading the text and watch this they would be really, really shocked at how Iron Man comes out of this movie. <laughs> he, doesn't, so he, doesn't, he doesn't fare well at all. Yeah. Well, um, with, the deaths hurt in this movie, generally yeah. speaking. Nigel yeah. Hawthorne in the tower yeah. hurts. Yeah. The, the kids in the tower, even though we don't see it really, it hurts. You know? yeah. uh, they, the stakes feel real. And uh, by the end of it, we really want Richard to, to die. die. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting, too, I, I couldn't help but do a on all of them, but more so at this one too, just going, okay, that's, you know, that's in the play. And, and what we don't have, and you can't have it, even if you went and saw a production of Richard III, you wouldn't have it, but there's three plays that come before it. Right. The three parts of Henry There's the a VI. lot of context leading yeah. into this. And if you had seen those, if you read those, you'd kind of you'd go, okay, right, this person is from this family, part of this family tree, and they're the same family but from a different branch, and they're fighting over the... There's no clean way to get that exposition into this movie. No, but... they kind of do a little bit at the beginning with you know some kind of text scroll, and they do a great job. But what I've always found interesting about the character of Richard III is that at the end of Henry VI Part Three, he's the one that kills Henry VI. He's the one that kills the king. He does the dirty he deed. He does the dirty deed. And right as the king is like halfway through cursing him, Richard just stabs him and he's, he's done. He's yeah. the one that kills him. He doesn't actually physically murder anyone, anyone. after that. Because how do you top yeah. killing a king? Yeah. And for me, I, it was like, if I ever get to play the part, I think the way that he's like, okay, I, I can't top it. I'm yeah. not going to try. Now my game is I'm going to make everyone else do yeah. what I want them I've to do. I've killed a king, so now I am one in my own mind, if yeah. not in reality. Because he doesn't. In, technically, in Richard III, the play, you know, in the movie, he, it starts with him shooting. Because that does happen just in Henry VI, Part Three. Right. But he doesn't actually kill anybody. He just always tells someone else, I need this done. Yeah. And they, and they do it. And if they don't do it, then they become one on the list. There's interesting thing with the choice, and I guess there's the historical accuracy of the, the fact that he is malformed, as they call him, and, yeah. and uh, ugly and different. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that that inherently sort of gives us default sympathy, typically for characters. Yep. And, yep. you know, maybe when he was a young kid being teased on the schoolyard, yes so, but he uses that to his advantage as much as anything else. else. Yeah. And I always so feel, shameless, yeah. but awesome. Yeah. And I, again, I, we can't draw on it, and I don't want to sidetrack us from talking about the movie, but it's, I, it's one of my favorite characters, and because he's built into so many plays, it, like his mom has... Like I know she curses him, but she's actually treated him like shit yeah. his entire life. And actually, the only person within those those plays, he doesn't show up in Henry the Sixth Part One. He doesn't show up till Part Two. But the only person who has treated him with any kind of respect is his father. And his father gets killed off, and his brothers have treated him like shit. Yeah. So he doesn't and really have problem doing this. He's got no problem doing it. In the end, it's like you know what. Yeah, and and from that point on, from when his dad dies on, he is a very different character in those plays, in my opinion. And I think that's the beginning of of the. He couldn't of do all of this evil while his old man was around. Yeah, it would. And I think it's in part lashing out of okay, this this war of the roses, this this whole conflict has cost me my father. Yeah. 
and I'm going to get those motherfuckers back. Yeah. And then he takes care of them. It's like, okay, now my own family hasn't been that great to me. Yeah. Perhaps a strike against it, it is a Coles Notes version. Yeah. If you if you're trying to cheat uh, and not read the text and watch the movie, <laughs> you may have fucked yourself. <laughs> it's like you might get like 60 65% on your yeah. test. True story, being speaking as an English major uh, in second year university, uh, I was told by one of my profs that uh, he would always open by teaching Frankenstein, very familiar, very sort of yeah. horror kind of comic books. And every now and then, even at the university level, he would get essays which would refer to the character of Igor. <laughs> Igor is a complete invention of Hollywood. Oh, exactly. He not does in not include it in the book at all. It's just like... You, you, know? <laughs> you obviously haven't taken the time to read the book. I've said in the past, don't get your history from Hollywood. Yeah. Don't get all of your Shakespeare from Hollywood. I, I want as many Shakespeare adaptations as Hollywood's willing to give us, but yeah. sooner or later, you got to do your due diligence, kids. Yeah. And I would add, don't, even, don't necessarily get your history from Shakespeare either, because nope. he, you know, he's made his decisions as well. Uh, anything else you want to say about Rich? Mm, no, I can't think of anything. It's, you know, it, again, it's a great cast. A lot of people who like, came out of the woodwork after, the, you know, I don't think many people knew who Jim Broadbent was. Not as was at, the at time. that time, you know what I mean? Kristen Scott Thomas, yeah. Maggie Smith. Yeah, it's it's a crazy good cast. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, not as easy to get your hands on these days. They need to reissue it. Yeah, no, I don't you know. I, the only reason I was able to watch it is because you gave me that copy. Yeah. I don't own one myself. Well, special thanks to my buddy Paxton Francis for lending us that. So <laughs> <laughs> Usually, they're all out of my collection. I have it on VHS, but I don't have it on DVD. glorious DVD. So uh, there it was, Richard III. Watch it. liked creepy sort of scary elements the whole witch aspect supernatural thing looming so loud and large yeah and the fact that this is such a indeed classic bloody tale of revenge um arguably of of this selection of plays maybe other than hamlet macbeth is the is the play that i am the most familiar with. right yeah um and i don't think that's Uncommon necessarily. Hammett and Mackers, everybody seems to have some at least vague. Well, yeah. R and J is probably the the highest tentpole as far as familiarity in the public consciousness. But you're but, right. Yeah, no, it's it's up there. Uh, this is all the classic themes of Shakespeare. Not quite as crazy and ugly as Titus, but uh, in a as close to a genuine horror construct as you're going to find anywhere in this list of movies. Yeah, and it's interesting. This is an Australian production. With Sam Worthington and a bunch of actors who I don't know particularly. Yeah, well. no, it's true. Yeah. Um, and it's very modernized. Um, we're, we're using guns. We're not using swords. And uh, it's like a drug. Yeah, culture drug lords kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing with the witches is sort of played off as possibly a drug trip, for yeah. instance, and things like this. Yeah. Contemporizing Shakespeare, I mean, there's. 
it, it, it can be done. Like I said, it's incredibly flexible. But when you make it modern to today, to this moment, to the now, yeah, that's when the language starts to stand out the most. Right. I think for people. Yep. And where you have to bend over backwards to sort of course correct. Um, I think I would make the case that this version of Macbeth course corrects in some ways uh, better than the RNJ that we're about to talk about. Yeah. But I'm willing to have that discussion. <laughs> but one thing that I, 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 I maybe give a few points off, and it's completely, completely like shallow and like maybe not fair. There's something strange about hearing an Australian accent. Shakespeare? Shakespeare? I don't know what it is. Like, it just, it, it sounds strange to my ears. And like we say, anybody, you can do it yeah. with a Russian accent, you can do it with like any other kind of accent, as long as you sound sort of noble and righteous. There's <laughs> something about fucking Australia that just... T- <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that now, because right before, like right after I watched the first chunk of films, and we tried to get it in, and doing this episode before I left for London because I went and did the International Fellowship at Shakespeare's Globe. Um, and we didn't make it work, which is why we're doing it now. But it's funny because I got there and three of the other actors were, were Australian. Nice. And I don't know, maybe it's the actors because those three Australians... Nailed it. Nailed it. Right. They are money. All three of them are like jaw-droppingly great. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's just... A, I know what you mean. Like some of them do it better than others, but it, yeah... There's also, you know, Sam Worthington's come up a long ways in the world, but the fact that yeah. the glamorization of the, the, the lifestyle and the violence in sort of the gangster world, which is not new to cinema, we see that in Mean Streets and Gangs in New York, so, you know, yeah. crime is cool. But I think part of the thing, too, is because everybody is so pretty and we have, like, the leather jackets and the yeah. stylization, it kind of feels like everyone's playing dress-up a little bit. Yeah. And then you add the fact of the Australian accent. I, I kept on sort of being nudged out of the movie and then I'd have to sort of shake myself back into it. Right. It's certainly not enough to sink the ship and I do think it's an interesting interpretation on Macbeth, but I, this is the one I kind of felt a little bit at arm's length from, uh, at least compared to the ones we've talked to so far. Yep. That said, I wouldn't say don't watch this version of Macbeth, but it still makes me hungry to see Festbender's Macbeth. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we both agree that had that film been released here <laughs> in Canada earlier, we probably would have watched that one and, and put it have in a date list. Night and exactly. Get our popcorn <laughs> and our Dr. Pepper and, and watch, and watch uh, Fastman do his thing. Yeah, because once you do contemporize some of these stories, you're like, you have to then explain, okay, well, how can we explain this violence? And kind of putting it in this context of this drug underlord and gang warfare between, you know, that makes it work. But what then it kind of takes away is someone like you know Duncan, who's the king of Scotland, who ultimately Macbeth assassinates. You know he's by all accounts a good king. Yeah. But by putting it in this contemporary world where it's two warring drug, it's like well, he's as noble as you can, can be, be if, if <laughs> exactly. you're a drug dealer yeah. or you lead a cartel. Right. You yeah. Know? And so then it becomes and not that this is just dismissive. Then it becomes more of and Macbeth does have that great speech where he talks about like look he's always been good to me mm-hmm. what you know i have no reason to do this to him and that still exists in this in this world but when you set it back you know well when shakespeare wrote it but even before then the historical basis for this play takes place in the late 900s right you know you can still be a good king and be chopping people's heads off because that that was what that's, was going that that's was the, the world. game we're playing yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so sometimes it's like oh, okay how do we do that and actually some of the things that did bug me, though, was by making it a trip thing 
in terms of seeing the witches, they made, they made the choice that Banquo didn't see the witches with him. Banquo's like passed out yeah. in the corner or something They're like that. They're all sort of having revelry, having won this battle. Right. So that kind of takes away, rightly or wrongly, it kind of takes away from the supernatural because in the play, they both see it. Implicitly. Yeah. yeah. And, and Banquo like, yeah. gets some news as well as Macbeth. Yeah. And it, it gives Banquo the ability to go once Duncan is killed. It gives him that moment of, oh, I what? can do the math. Yeah, something might be going on here, and maybe I'm in trouble. Yeah. Well, the, so we lose that. Interesting, too. Macbeth is a flawed character, like all of the tragedies are. But I think this one is interesting in that he is implicitly fucked by fate, yeah. in a way. Like, uh, he has his own issues, and he can be manipulated, and his, you know, his. His wife is overly ambitious. There's problems that, that sort of feed into it. But basically, he is given this prophecy by these witches, which will come true. But if the witches hadn't given him that prophecy, none of it would have come true. Because he probably wouldn't have acted on it. Because they instigated. Yeah. They started. And I think that's an interesting sort of, and almost an exception in a lot of ways with Shakespearean tragedy, isn't it? Between the witches and his wife, he is convinced by evil women to do evil things. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not necessarily something innate in him. It's something that is brought out of him. Right. Um, now, Macbeth does wrong, and he deserves what happens to him at the end. Yep. I'm, not, I'm not cheering for him. But I've always found that interesting. Yep. It's sort of like the, the Bible text about God himself hardening the Pharaoh's heart. Right. Where God made him evil. So right. he didn't have a choice at that point. Right. right. Like, yeah. <laughs> God damned him and made him worse than all of the other people. Like... It, it, instead of it being an internal flaw of a person, it comes from the supernatural source. Right. And I think that's unique-ish in Shakespeare, unless I'm mistaken. No, no, no there's some supernatural elements in some of his other plays, but not, As implicitly not like this. driving the plot. Yeah. You know, there's you know there's ghosts. People see ghosts and stuff like that. Or you know, and you've got someone like Midsummer Night's Dream where there's a supernatural element, but in a very comedic type sense, but very much like... This is, yeah, you're right. This is different. And it's and it's fine. I'm in the middle of reading James Shapiro's new book, The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606, right. which is when they think this is being written. And just how it was tied to, at that point, coming out of the gunpowder plot to assassinate King James and King James's own superstitions about witches and just how much Shakespeare actually did pull from the things that were going on in London, in England, around him. Interesting. That are in his plays. It's like, you know what? I'm going to be able to maybe put this on the table. I'm not explicitly saying this thing, but, you know, talk about the assassination of a Scottish king. Yes. And King James came over from Scotland as Elizabeth's cousin and became James I of England, although he was James VI of Scotland and the, yeah. the unifying... and. It, it's super fascinating and just going, you know what? He's got this thing about witches and they were actually having trials and finding people. And it's like, I, I find it absolutely jaw-droppingly fascinating about yeah. what was going on at that time. That was reflected in the In work. the play, yeah. yeah. One thing I think this movie does better than most uh, productions, film or, or otherwise, because you can do some of these extra things with film that are more difficult to do with theater and the actress who played Lady Mac, if I'm not mistaken, she actually co-wrote the screenplay, I think. Um, what it did give me is that the opening sequence is at the, at the grave of their child. Because in the play, you, know, you don't find out till later. You know, she goes, I have, you know, I have given suck. And she talks about being able, you know, she actually knows what it's like to breastfeed the baby and she, you know, to 
put a bit of a guilt trip on him. I know that's oversimplifying it, but it says, you know, I, I would actually take that babe and I would dash its brains out before I would go back on what I promised, yeah. like what you're doing right now. Yeah. If I said I was going to do something, yeah, I'm fucking going to do it. going to do it. And she references, you know, the child that obviously they don't have because yeah. it's not the play. In, the, in this film, it's framed right at the beginning with them at the grave. And there's something about the loss of the child and something being taken away from her and from them it feeds that, that feeds that, that like, I want something back from the world or... Or whatever. I don't have a child, so I will have the power right. and the money and the glory. And, and then by setting that up, when we get later, then when, when Mac kind of goes off script and starts not telling her what he's up to, and he makes the decision to kill Macduff's family, that, for me, is the, that's what divides them finally apart yeah. from each other. You know, there's that, that's where her madness begins, is like, I've just caused all of this, all of this to happen, and now it's cost another family... Everything. Everything. Yeah. Kids and stuff. Uh, and so I like that. I thought that was really, really. Victoria cool. Hill is the name of the actress that plays Lady Macbeth in this. I don't know her beyond this. I don't think there's a lot of I Australian actors here. Uh, and again, I, I was so dismissive about the Australian accent. I think everybody's fine in the movie. I just, it's, 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 a, personal, it's a personal hang up of mine. It's totally unfair. Well, yeah, but, I think it's, well, yeah, but it's something we don't hear. Yeah. Right? Like, it's something we, you know, we hear the Brits do it because we have it in films and more often than not. It is, you're like, huh. That's not a sound that I, I hear saying uh, these words. Here's the thing, and I don't want you to think that I'm against f- the female nude form. Um, <laughs> all of the women yeah. in this play at some point we see naked in this movie. The witches are naked, yeah. Lady Macbeth is naked, everybody's naked. Yeah. And I understand the choice to make the witches is mysterious and ethereal. But what about the uh, high school girl thing? Because off the top, I think when they first see them coming out of the graveyard, they're in like... Like schoolgirl skirts and yeah, stuff. Having giddy fun. Yeah. Uh, for me, I because they they are motivating a, a sort of force of evil that send these people to their deaths. They self destruct to a certain degree, but as we talked about, they're manipulated. For me, the witches should be scary. Right. They should not give me an erection. Right. They should, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how I would handle. If I was directing a play of Macbeth, I would cast the scariest performances for the witches, right. you know? Right. Yeah. I think that, that, the, that I would play up that supernatural end. And because there are so few female roles in Shakespeare, I do find it, find it unfortunate that all of them had to have their tits out in order to be in this particular production. Yeah. Again, I have nothing against breasts. In fact, I'm for them. But <laughs> <laughs> No, I know what you mean. It's like, just like, not how now I he's having choose. an orgy with the witches. It's yes. like, wow, okay. Yeah. And again, I just think it's a way of selling the movie, the, the movie to to the younger audience. And yeah. I pre- yeah. their hearts in the right place in a lot of ways. But I want the witches to be scary. That's always my instinct. Yeah, uh, and and I think you know I, I, another thing this movie does well. We talked about before, like with Robert Downey Jr. seeing his end in Richard the Third. You know, Duncan's assassination happens off stage mm-hmm. in the play. Not so this, much here. Not so much here. It's <laughs> it is it is brutal. <laughs> It's like you see that assassination, and I'm not giving anything away because that happens in the first, you know, quarter of the movie. Yeah, like, like that is a benefit of doing it on film, right? It's there. ugly. Yeah, yeah. it's it ugly is. in a way you just probably couldn't do on stage. Yeah, it's hard to watch, and yeah, <laughs> Yeah, Lady Macbeth is a very fascinating figure in a lot of ways, and I do like her playing it as you know, this is all revenge against the world for her her own personal losses. Yeah, um, and through that, she manipulates her husband to do evil. 
Yeah. Um, but it's a very sort of coveted role, you know. It's, it's again, because there's so few really juicy female roles, yeah. you know. <laughs> Ophelia and Lady Macbeth are like the two that come to mind. Come on, yeah, for most people. I, yeah, no, it's true. Like, you know, Juliet and stuff like that, because they're the ones that we study and we, we know more so yeah. through high school. And, you know, we see those plays get produced more often. I would encourage people to seek out this version of Macbeth. I'm less enthusiastic about this, but it's not a bad movie. Right. I mean, it's it's a solid pass at Shakespeare, but I think it just might be a little bit outclassed in this group. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, two households, both alike in dignity. Throw your mistempered weapon to the ground! From forth the fatal loanings of these two foes, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. A pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Who is it that you love? Gentle Romeo, of thou dost love, pronounce faithfully. My heart's dear love is set on the fair daughter of rich Capulet. Romeo! Thou art a villain! Sharing someone else's Turn and drop! Turn and drop! My only love sprung from my only hate. Romeo is Venice. I think that that Radiohead B-side talk show host yeah. is the best thing that came out of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I have a feeling thing. I like this one a lot more than you did. <laughs> Here's the thing, uh, Baz Luhrmann. As far as I'm concerned, his greatest accomplishment was his first film, Strictly Ballroom, right. which is an utterly charming romantic comedy. As far as I'm concerned, everything since then... Well, no, I think Great Gatsby was watchable, but for the most part, he wears me out. Right. Moulin Rouge wore me out. Right. Romeo and Juliet wore me out. There's good things to say about Romeo and Juliet. Yep. Aesthetically, it's well done. The acting is interesting. The approach to the material is interesting. But it is so hyperactive and so like we're doing Shakespeare motherfucker love it screaming at you the movie eventually slowly starts to calm down and give us authentic scenes yeah but by that point I am I love movies I am I I, I, like especially in the 90s when this came out I was in the theater as much as I could afford to be yeah I almost fucking walked on R&J the scene where Juliet was introduced and her mom's going, Juliet! Yeah, that, that's the, the one I was going to staircase, and I'd already gone through this super kinetic action sequence that almost was impossible to follow. And there's nothing like, else like it in the movie where it's like, it's like it's, you can tell they've sped up the film because yeah. of the way she's, you know, she's moving through the room. It's like, if this is going to be two hours of this, if this is what this RNJ is going to be, like, I almost wanted to leave. I didn't. And like I said, things did slow down and we eventually yeah. got a very sort of human performance from Pete Postlethwaite. And yeah. like, there were some really strong moments. But for the most part, this is a 1990 fever dream. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my disc was kind of skipping on me when I was watching it. Like, yeah. there was a few times where the disc started acting up. I got it used or whatever. And at first, I couldn't tell if it was if it was actually just the, the disc. choice made by Baz Luhrmann to make the audio cut out just for a second there, or if it was the disc fucking up. And when that kind of shit's going down, I think that I'm not in the movie. Yep. 
So I think I've sort of tipped my hand <laughs> a little bit. I don't think our six Baslin's. are going to our six are going to be the same at all. <laughs> R and J. Uh, it's again a movie that was trying to present Shakespeare to a young audience in as a MTV away as possible. And again, I like where its heart's at. I also have a default of this. I've studied Romeo and Juliet three times, yeah, and it might be my least favorite right. Shakespeare play. play period. Right. Yeah. So that was working against me too. Not a fan of the director. Not my favorite Shakespeare play. play so yeah. I will to say, admit, I take my baggage into it. But no, Sky, I am not a fan. <laughs> um, this one, I had a flip of what I had on Hamlet. Hamlet, I didn't like it as much. When I watched it again, mm -hmm. I actually, I did find, I had the memory of going to see this in the movie theater and going, yeah, I, I liked it. You know, but, uh, so when I watched it again, I, by the end, I enjoyed watching it now more than I did, as I recall, when it first came out. And I think it's because Claire Danes and DiCaprio win me over in their scenes together. So that's in you know, in spite of everything else that's going on yeah. around them. But I had forgotten, I had forgotten how stylized it was off the top. Yeah. And Diane Venora is an amazing actress, but the, you're right, that Lady Capulet bit, I'm like, oh no, what? No, I must have blocked this out. Yeah. I didn't remember. And the whole, the, the duel with Jamie Kennedy and, and, and uh, oh, Leguizamo. John Leguizamo. You know, that, that whole sequence, I'm like, what? He was like this? Like I had totally blocked out just how, ridiculously crazy yeah that whole opening brawl was yeah. i and some of the choices even like when he says draw your sword and pulls out his gun and then they do a zoom in on the gun, the gun and the word sword, sword is and... written on the gun yeah give me some fucking respect <laughs> through context we will get it you refer yeah. to your gun as a sword holy shit some poor props rapier, guy had to like rapier. draw right rapier and sword on the side of all these weapons yeah. to make sure everybody fucking get it. There was some hand holding going on on top of this sort of uh, yeah. stew of imagery being shoved down your face. Yeah, I, I did enjoy. Um, I did. I really liked. I guess what we called the balcony scene, although there's not actually a balcony in it. In it. If you really actually look at the scene, it's just light through yonder window breaks. She's at a window. It's not <laughs> at a fucking balcony. There was a theater with a balcony one once upon and a time, and it became the balcony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that whole sequence I loved, like them in the pool. Like, just the, the, they actually they played off each other really, really well. Because so the camera I bought that. actually calmed down enough to give you a scene. Yeah, and when that happens, we get into the Shakespearean text and the back and forth, and it's yeah. relatively well handled. And I guess I'll give props to Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Apparently, they fucking despised each other and you would never guess it <laughs> no. in the performances um i've had, i have a personal hang-up with with dicaprio in a lot of ways too i think he's a really strong uh, actor but it just took him 10 or 15 years longer than most for his yep. balls to drop for some reason like he always <laughs> looks like a little kid to me yeah and in romeo and juliet it's it fine because yeah. he's supposed to be a little kid but when he's playing the aviator when he's playing these high status characters and right I, I, it was until the departed where i could really 100 percent get behind yeah okay you're grown up i believe you in this position <laughs> and that sounds really mean and again i don't think he's a bad actor i just think you needed to be that's cast. when you bought it yeah. yeah you needed to cast him differently until yeah. he uh, was a believable grown-up to yeah. me which was sometime in his mid-30s for yep. some reason uh, well, we were we were introduced to him you know and what's eating gilbert grape and stuff like that when he was young 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 and he was doing good young roles yeah but i think he moved to the adult roles before his 
thought he was ready, ready for, for it. it. <laughs> that sounds terrible. And that has nothing really to do with R&J. That's right. sort of peripheral. I have a friend, uh, well, a former friend, he doesn't actually talk to me anymore, but he had a... <laughs> It's a long, long sorted Shakespearean story, but he had a fairly uh, good case to be made about Romeo and Juliet in that the way to do this play and make it make sense is that everybody in the play is just shit faced drunk, except for the except for the friar, or the uh, friar Lawrence. Friar Lawrence. Uh, it's just everybody is completely run by their emotions and their id, and uh, just. Wild swings of opinion and just generally, like, right? When we open on on Romeo, famously, he's all about Rosaline. Yeah. His life is empty and pointless without Rosaline. Yeah. And then he fucking sees Juliet. Doesn't talk to her. He no. just sees her and struck by and a thunderbolt. Maybe. Rosaline yeah. could like live forever or die tomorrow. He doesn't give a fuck yeah. about Rosaline, yeah. right? And this sort of passionate young love, which is so valued and such a treasured thing of cinema. Is kind of an illusion. Yeah. You know, if they didn't end up shooting or killing themselves at the end of this movie, yeah. I'm sure the first time she got really picky about what she ordered at the restaurants, or the <laughs> this, first time this relationship's he, breaking. Yeah. Up. <laughs> the first time he chose to go hang out with the boys instead of stay home and watch a rom com, they would have fucking broken up, right? <laughs> but no, because they're run on this such high frequency of emotions, death, death, yeah. death. My problem, and it's in the play for me, not just the movie, is that. I don't care. <laughs> right. And uh, that's, again, my baggage. Well, it's, it's funny. What, I've been in this one a couple of times now. Like, for the longest... Well, I shouldn't say that. I was in... One of my very first Apprentice gigs was shortly right out of university. I was in a production of R&J at Theatre Calgary, playing a bunch of smaller roles. And then I hadn't been in a production for a long time. And then I did two, like, back-to-back. I did the last mm. one at Stratford and then came back here for the 30th anniversary and doubled down and played Friar Lawrence and Tybalt for Shakespeare in the Saskatchewan right after I played Benvolio the year before at Stratford. So I kind of, the, the play had been on my brain, just kind of various things. <laughs> so like, you could just recite it for us. Well, yeah, no, or parts of it, maybe. <laughs> but with that prologue at the beginning, I think now if I was to, to do it, I think I would have that prologue be spoken by what would be the essence of fate. You know, if we talk about Macbeth, in order for the stupidity to stop. This is what's going to have to happen. Yeah. These two are going to have, they're going to die. I'm telling you right now at the beginning, before this, you see what technically happens. Yeah. The only thing that's going to stop it is these two kids dying. Yeah. These two young lovers take yeah. their lives. And, and then whether you not, you have that actor, he or she or whatever, throughout the play, you know, because in, in the production that Will directed, Chase Brown, Saskatchewan, who, who kind of was our apothecary, made these appearances. Right. throughout and that's kind of made me think you know i think i would make that person he or she sort of our anchor yeah, yeah. try to find ways to go like you know what i could say the one same person in this chaos it's like you know what everyone's you know they're fighting fighting i'm like i'm you know we've warned you we yeah. warned you the only way this is going to end is in in bloodshed so it's it's so much in a way i guess that might rob away from the love that they think they feel for each other and more about like we've been warning you yeah you can either see reason, or yeah. you can. Or this, is, you can this is what it's yeah. going to cost you in the end: is your next, the next generation. Yeah, um, that I get more excited about that kind of overall framing device than than like it being viewed as a love story, which obviously most people do. Uh, a few things I want to say complimentary about the movie because yeah. I realize I've kind of been raving. <laughs> 
I love the helicopter pursuit to yeah. the grave where yeah, they're, so, yeah. they're, they're finding, uh, chasing Romeo. In. And I love the final scene between he and Claire Danes where they made the decision that uh, Claire Danes awakes before he he's dies. actually died. He's taken the poison, but he hasn't died yeah. yet. And uh, it was emotionally manipulative to the level of the villain killing a puppy dog in a movie yeah. or something like that as far as like, oh no. Yeah. But in a movie that wasn't working for me, that, that worked. worked. Yeah. So I will compliment that. Yeah. And Pete Postlewaite was just this island of reality and this ocean of shit for me. Every time, like, every yeah, time he was good. on stream, all of a sudden I was like in it. I like, I was like, I believed him in a way that the yeah. artifice took me out of it. And like you say, great actors. I like Brian Dennehy. He's got nothing really to do in this movie. I like Diane Venora. Yeah. Which is just decoration. Yeah. John Leguizamo, uh, you know, brings some style flash to Tybalt, but Tybalt really is a nothing role. No offense. I'm sure when you did it, it was genius. <laughs> he was brilliant. But, but as far as his role in the story, I'm a dick, then I continue being a dick, and then I die. <laughs> you know, like. Well, yeah, he's many ways, like, you know, he's, he's a catalyst. Yeah. But, yeah, it depends. It's always interesting about how you decide to play some of these characters. Like, I remember someone saying, there's, there's one, he has one line you just can't get around when he's in that opening battle sequence where um, Balthazar, you know, he says, you know, help me keep the peace. He's like, help me. No and, and, and he goes, I hate the word. Yeah. Like, that's the one time where you're like, if you took that word out, yeah. that, that little short line, you could actually make a point of saying he's just sticking up for his family. Yeah. And yeah. he's just caught in this fight. But he's got that one line, peace, I hate the word. And as that I hate makes all, him a villain. You know, yeah. Hell, all Montagues and the have at the coward, and then they start the fight. It's like, yeah, that's kind of a tough one to get around. But other than that, he's like, he loves his cousin, he you know, loves his family. Mm -hmm. And oh, there's this, this kind of weird incestuous thing going on between him and Lady Capulet in this version. And it's like, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, the other problem with this guy is I don't know what the best film version of RNJ looks like. Yeah, like, I, mean, I, don't know, and I don't know in my head what the best track to take was. Like, I don't have any notes to give them as far as what would improve this yeah, for like me. Yeah, there's supposed to be some... There was one that came a little while ago, right? With Haley Stand? Yeah, the chick from True Grit. From True Grit. I, I never saw it. Me either, no. Um, yeah, the one thing about making the decision to end it, which I agree, I, I did like it too in terms of a, a way to, to end it and a finality with Juliet you know, using the gun yeah. and then realizing, like, oh, fuck, what have we done? Um, is then you don't have Pete Paulsewit coming back in as the as the friar, no. having that interaction with her. The drama, drama has reached its apex, and yeah. and if if the two dead bodies don't say what you need to be said, then you've yeah. failed the story. And then really. you can cut to, as we said before, the news broadcast, the way they would get a lot of that, you know, either stuff from the prince or from the prologue at the beginning, yeah. things like that. Uh, I think it's a slippery slope. Again, I talked about it with the Australian version of Macbeth because it was set so now in a lot of ways. It was like this messy sort of Mexico City type of environment yeah. that they were in, but it still felt very 1995 or whenever it was that it came out. Yeah. Uh, that disjunction doesn't play completely well for me. Right. And now watching it further separated, it's like Shakespeare through a filter of the 90s. Right. I've... Uh, I've said on the podcast before that I thought that Scream, the first Wes Craven Scream movie, <laughs> yeah. is like the most 90s movie. It's like the 90s. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is RNJ second? would be a close second <laughs> if you wanted to know like 90s aesthetic. And well, this, so, like, as you see, we talk about the soundtrack. Like, it was just as popular mm -hmm. 
as the, as well, the if maybe if not more so. There was some yeah, tracks. I've got there. a lot more joy out of the soundtrack yeah. than I did the movie. I hate doing so shitty, <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I'm at. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I've had my say on RJ. Is there anything else you want to say to, to, to defend it? <laughs> no, I, I kind of again I, that that ending, you know, kind of makes it. Yeah. In terms, it sets it apart from others, and it is a powerful, powerful. End. And yeah, and DiCaprio and Claire Danes actually do kind of win me over in their scenes. And then, like, together again, DiCaprio is good in this. I was talking shit about him, but he's playing a young, young, dumb kid. Yeah. And he can do that. Yeah. He could do that well into his thirties. Was yeah. the problem. And, and Harold Perrineau, you know, he plays Mercutio. Oh, There's some yeah. really interesting takes on that character. Again, they kind of thinned him out a bit, though, too, didn't they? Like, uh... yeah, yeah, but you know, that character, that character gets talked about a lot, and rightfully so. But he is another one where you know, he's sort of he the mirror does... image of Tybalt, right? He's the yeah. good version of Tybalt. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, if he just let things go. We might not have the ending we have as well too, but there's honor getting in the way of saying you can't you can't let him just you know but disrespect points, you like that. Uh, thank you for bringing up Harold Perrineau because yeah. I would have regretted if we didn't. Because again, it's a small role, and he does he's playing it like a drag queen, very big and flamboyant, yeah. and you could argue he's like genuinely in love with Romeo, which is what's yeah. motivating all of this, which gives it another interesting layer. Yeah, but he does match pace with Lerman as far as being big and outlandish and matching the style of the filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. But unlike what we talked about the characters in Titus, I believe that performance, I believe he knows what he's talking about. Right. You know? And uh, Mercutio is all ether. He is all about philosophy and intangibles. And it yeah. would be easy to get lost in. Yeah. And Perrineau did really well in yeah. that. So yeah. yeah, for sure, that's another, another thing I can endorse. Yep. A lot of the actors that I kind of felt... Not necessarily sucked, but I just kind of neither here nor, nor there. <laughs> right. they, it was so hyper-edited that it was almost not about their performance. It was about... The, the star of the movie was Baz Luhrmann. So right. I guess if you like Baz Luhrmann, you'll you might probably like the, like the movie. Yeah. Adaptations of William Shakespeare. Reviewed. The bloody, the bloody, the bloody works of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare. We've reviewed them. It's now your time to rank them. I just want to say again, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I know pleasure. I never get to see you, but there's a lot of love in this room right now. Just yeah. so you know, this is gonna do this more often, not just on you know podcasts. <laughs> just generally, in general, it's good to see you, brother. Um, but uh, please, I would love to hear what is your least favorite of these movies. My least favorite was the Macbeth. Okay. Yeah, um, there was moments again, you know, we talked about before that I quite liked in it, but just as a whole, it, it just it didn't stand up to the other ones in terms of uh, overall production. Some of the choices did work, and then some of them I was like, ah, okay, come on, fun. yeah. Um, but I, I should add though, there was none of them that I hated that I was just like, oh god, I wish I hadn't seen it. There was always something in one of them um, that made me go, oh, that was a pretty cool choice. Um, then it, it kind of got tough for me after that. Uh, actually, I put Coriolanus as five. Okay. Um, I put Richard the Third at four. Uh, I think in part because of the, the stuff that I just missed. Right. Um, that was really all, yeah. In, you felt a hole in the yeah. It's in, like in, they all in the script somewhere. And then uh, R and J. And then Braun is Hamlet. And then I had Titus as my number one. Okay. Yeah, I think mean, that just as a film it. And it was funny. I went back and forth 
it wasn't consistent in terms of, okay, am I, is this on the merits of adapting the play or is it on the merits of a film of itself? And it ended up being this kind of this mix right. of, of both, you know, because I wouldn't say, you know, am I going to say Titus is a better play than Hamlet? Yeah. Nope. But in terms of those films, where I am now, that film that Julie Tamer put together, I just find visually interesting. Yeah. And it kind of introduced a play that doesn't get done very often. And like I say, I think it sort of is the apex of Julie Tamer's talents. She did this movie Across the Universe. Yeah, the Beatles. Basically yeah. a series of Beatles music videos. Yeah. And as a series of music videos, I guess it's fine. But as a film, I don't know that it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, she's visually amazing. And when she tells a concise story, uh, it's great. But yeah. uh, when she doesn't... Yep. <laughs> so... Uh, no, we're not six for six or zero for six. I'm afraid you're not walking away with a prize. But... Oh, it's too bad. I'm, I'm going to write them down, though, because I'm, wondering, I'm <laughs> yeah. curious. If, okay. if I know you're a busy man, but if you would love to, do, if you'd like to do the podcast again, you're always welcome. Well, I'll do uh, it again. If you go zero for six or six for six, you'd walk away with a prize. But alas, today is not. <laughs> Neither. <today. laughs> okay, look, I, I know I bring my own problems and issues with this. I am not a Baz Luhrmann fan, but I did put... His RNG at the bottom. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make me angry the way Moulin Rouge did in that, like, I was I was in a bad place when I saw the movie for the first time. Right. So, like, I, I was already not into it, but that movie actually gave me a headache and made me nauseous. And it was one of those things where it was a movie that everybody loved, and I was, seemed to be, like, the one guy going, what are you guys <laughs> talking about? What are you talking about? And... Maybe there's some residual resentment that sort of fed my way into, <laughs> into that this ranking. I'm saying yeah. maybe don't and, take... And yeah, Moulin Rouge is a film I enjoyed. There so you go. There you go. But, so what I'm saying is I'm putting it at the bottom of the list, but maybe don't take my word for it because people do seem to like this version of Romeo and Juliet more than I do. And it certainly it didn't rub me as the wrong way as much as Moulin Rouge did. Right. There was something about that movie. Maybe the day that I saw it, I was just... It was the wrong time to see But no, but I remember people when they saw it because right? it was such a weird mix of, okay, it's set... In the past, but it's it's a big music video medley of popular songs it's from now. It's a romance now. that's cut like an action movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, in fifth position is where I put the Australian take on Macbeth with mm. Sam Worthington. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, it was a little bit softer version of it as far as the rich sort of approaches that were being taken throughout the other films. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's not bad, but it's certainly not amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess this new Best Bender version will be at least as or more interesting. I would, I would err on the stat side as well. Uh, in fourth place, and again, I want to someday I'll have to give it another day in court because, like I said, it came new to me. Is where I put Coriolanus. Yeah. Um, I actually did find the text and story quite fascinating. Uh, the only thing that sort of separated me, and again, all of these plays are full of unlikable characters, but. I didn't anchor with anybody. Yeah. I didn't cheer for Gerard Butler or for Fines. You know, like uh, I watched it play out and was engaged, but I didn't. I couldn't pick a team. You yeah. Know? So and I it's interesting. Too, I don't they, know if that's a good or bad thing. Yeah, and how they marketed that one too, right? You look at all the posters and the, a lot of the images on it. Was the two of them facing off? Yeah. And it's like, well, he's don't get me wrong. Gerard Butler's character is is important. Yeah. But. It's, it, that's not what that, that movie is really about in no. terms of those two and some kind of... Sh- it's more a man against himself in a lot of ways yeah. than it is against uh, the outside forces. Yeah. Uh, appropriately, in third position, I'm putting Richard III. It is a Coles Notes version of it, but it is a great, great production. I love the World War II aesthetic. I think Ian McKellen just nails it. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of something that proudly shows the flexibility 
of Shakespeare. So by all means, yeah, all means. And if you ever get a chance to see William Hurt play it, but <laughs> I recommend <laughs> you don't that. get that chance. <laughs> I remember asking you when you saw it, how was it? He spit on me. Did you yes, weren't you yes, in the front yes, row or yes, something? Yes, right? I was yeah. right on there. I got some some hurt spit on me. <laughs> okay, so that brings us to second place. Yeah. And I waffled on, on on two and one, but I ended up putting Bernard's Hamlet at number two. I know when you listen to a review, it might have sounded like I was more hard on it yeah. than than its placement suggests. But I love the scale and size of yeah. it, and I. As much as I don't necessarily get behind the Jack Lemmon performance or behind the Robin Williams performance, I understand why they're there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he, he and Robin Williams were good friends. Robin Williams has a supporting role in Dead Again that's completely uncredited. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, a good point. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, like, so it wasn't just random that, that Robin Williams was there. He liked the guy and yeah. said, is there, you know, is there room for me? Sure, play this yeah. role. And but, Robin Williams, as everyone knows, is a comedic guy, but he went to Juilliard for Christ's yeah. sake. Like, you know, he's, he knows he's, what a, he's, doing. he's a theater guy. But well, was a theater just guy. by being Robin Williams, it's like, oh, Robin Williams, and bang, you're out of the movie just for a second, yeah. you know? Yeah. But that's not entirely the movie's fault. Yeah. And there's so much to like about it. Yeah. It's at number two. Yeah. Uh, Titus is also a deeply flawed movie, but I think that it's probably the most, even compared to Hamlet, probably the most ambitious thing as far as uh, feeding a tough story to an audience and not talking down to us. Right. And uh, it is a hard R, you know, bloody, messy tale of revenge. And I know people who are typical fans of my podcast may not be Shakespeare fans as a rule, but if you're into horror... And you're only going to watch one of these six movies. <laughs> watch that one. Titus is fucked. Yeah. Like, it is a dark, bitter pill. Um, yeah. And uh, I might watch the other films more than I watch this one because of that. But right. in this list of movies today, I'm going to say that Titus <laughs> is number one. See, well, in the end, really, it's R&J that really screwed up our lists. Because yeah. if you take R&J out from where I, where I put it, then all the other ones fall in the more same sequence. More or less lined up, yeah. yeah. The, the only one that I'm a little bit wishy-washy on that may go climb higher or lower would be Coriolanus because I am really basing it off of one, one path. Yes, yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think that things appreciate or depreciate over time. And so. I would like to see... I didn't get a chance to go see it. Um, Hiddleston did it. And they did one of those live broadcasts. Oh, nice. And I never got a chance to see it. And apparently, you know, it's very good. You know, that'd be interesting to try to see different interpretations of it. Hmm. Just to see, you know, how the hell... Do you portray that guy from beginning to end? I guess the only thing I would I would add, and I talk about this at Q and A's or if I do workshops with 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 not just with students but you know young professionals, is uh, for, usually I tell people forget what you think you know. And there's a lot of people like oh I know Hamlet or I know Macbeth and they're like well but you I've might been have studying st- it for 15 years and I don't. Yeah, and there's always <laughs> chances for reinterpretation. So yeah, pick it up. Give those plays a read. Pick up one you don't know because the guy actually has, you know, yeah. 37 plays, co-authored probably a few others. And it's really interesting when you kind of shop and compare like, oh, that's interesting. He wrote this one three years after the fact, but he's actually kind of picking up on a theme that he had in this play. He's a much more fat. And there's a reason why he's a very popular writer. Yeah. And don't, uh, don't let your high school English teacher... <laughs> color your yeah. view of Shakespeare for the yeah. rest of your life. And it can be like a trial for people, especially when they don't want to receive it. They're 15 and they have no interest or no yeah. beginning of wanting it. It becomes this this thing that was forced on them yeah. when they're kids. And, and yeah. go see a production too. That's the thing too, right? They were Live plays. theater is just a special thing and it's less and less appreciated, especially in this corner of the world, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
any of my my rank and review fans out there that that sort of played along, stretched their patience, and listened through this Shakespeare podcast, <laughs> even though it's not our typical one. I thank you for doing that, and uh, you know, if one person watches one one of these movies and gets a little more into Shakespeare because of this, mission accomplished. All fucking worthwhile. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Sky. Thanks, thank buddy. you so much for doing this. And uh, when if your schedule opens up, I know you're a busy man. I'd love to have you back. I would love to do it again. Take your pick, brother. Yeah. the academic lessons are over. Uh, I promise next week we'll be getting down to some more familiar <laughs> topics. Uh, thank everybody for bearing with me for this. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I love talking theater. I love talking Shakespeare. Uh, it's just another corner of my life that I don't usually get to express in the podcast. So this was different and a lot of fun for me. Please, please, please seek out Rank and Review on iTunes and on Facebook. Uh, leave me a message, leave me a like, and uh, do tell your friends about Rank and Review. This is your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons thanking you all for listening, and I hope to be talking to you next episode.